Okay. All right. Welcome to the Tuesday, February 6, 2024, Lawrence City Commission meeting. And to get us started off, I believe we have an executive session. I move that we recess into executive session for approximately 30 minutes to discuss privileged legal communications from the city's attorney regarding potential litigation pursuant to KSA 754319 subsection B2. The justification for the executive session is to keep attorney-client privilege matters confidential at this time. The city commission will resume its regular meeting in the city commission room at approximately 5.31 p.m. after the executive session is concluded. Second. I have a first and a second. All those in favor, please say aye. 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 Looking at none opposed, that passes 5-0. We will now recess into executive session. <laughs> From executive session and have nothing to report. We'll resume the rest of the meeting at 5.45. It's 5.31 just in time, too, by the way. Yeah. That's good time. Thank you. All right, everyone. Um, welcome back to the uh, February 6, 2024 Lawrence City Commission meeting. And now I'll just have Sherry go ahead and give us the rundown. Thank you, Mayor, and good evening, everyone. To minimize distractions during the meeting, please silence your cell phones. For those attending virtually, please ensure you are muted and your video is off when you are not actively participating in the meeting. The city reserves the right to turn videos off or mute virtual participants. This meeting is being recorded and broadcast on the city's YouTube channel and cable channel 25. When the mayor calls for public comment, please approach the podium to indicate you wish to speak. Those participating virtually should use the raise hand function to indicate they wish to speak. Please leave your virtual hand raised until you are called on. If you have any trouble, you can send a chat and all chats go directly to the meeting host. Please state your name before speaking, and all comments will be limited to three minutes. Thank you, Mayor. Thank you, Sherry. All right, I'll go ahead and get us started off with uh, item B, uh, approve the agenda. The City Commission reserves the right to amend, supplement, or reorder the agenda during the meeting. Do I have a motion? Move to approve the agenda. Second. I have a first and a second. All those in favor, please say aye. 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 It's like 5-0, none opposed. All right, moving on to item C, recognition pro proclamation and presentation, proclaim the month of February 2024 as Black History Month. Is there anyone here to go ahead and speak to that item? Good evening, mm. City staff and audience, I have um, the honor of talking to you all today and I have prepared five minutes if I just don't breathe. <laughs> mm -hmm. um, but I'm gonna start off um, by um, thanking you for the opportunity to acknowledge this month and to talk a little bit about um, 
why this month is so important to me and to this community. Race is embedded in the fabric of American culture. And for those even today who are raising questions about why we're still talking about race, it is because we cannot not stop talking about race. It is one of those things that determine the quality of your life, where you live, where you might be located, and the positions or status of your life. Black Americans face disproportionately higher rates of poor health outcomes across most illnesses, diabetes, hypertension, heart disease, asthma, just to name a few. I have often wondered exactly what causes racial differences in diseases or disease rates in treatment response, and whether we might be able to reduce disparities and combat some diseases more effectively with a better understanding of the factors involved. Systemic racism clearly play a major role, as do socioeconomics, environment, and culture. Although race is a social construct rather than a biological construct, there are inherited genetic variations that play a role in drug response and adverse reactions, and genetic variations differ among different ethnicities. For example, the most commonly prescribed medication for asthma, albuterol may not always be effective for people with African ancestry as it is for people of, of European descent. It took several years after albuterol was approved and on the market to gain more understanding of its suboptimal efficacy in black bodies. With a better overstanding of genetic variations that contribute to these differences, we may be able to provide more effective treatments for a group of children who are nearly two times as likely to have asthma than their white peers. Black people with uteri are more likely than white women to die of breast cancer despite being diagnosed at similar rates. And during pregnancy, the death rate for black women in the US is comparable to developing countries despite technology advancements. Inequities in health and wellness are largely caused by the systems that affect people's health, not biological differences. Genes do not cause racial disparity. Society does. That means many of the documented racial disparities are preventable, and through thorough research and comprehensive policy changes are po powerful tools in improving outcomes for black Americans. But health care is much more than medical. Race is not a perspective on international relations. It is a central organizing feature of world politics. Core concepts like anarchy and hierarchy are raced. They are rooted in discourses that center and favor Europe and the West. These concepts implicitly and explicitly pit developed against undeveloped, modern against primitive, civilized against uncivilized, and their use is racist. These invented binaries are used to explain subjugation and exploitation around the globe, and our local data supports this also. According to the latest updated Douglas County Correctional Facility Inmate Data Dashboard, um, there are 142 inmates housed as of February 2nd, 2024. Nine of those identify as American Indian or indigenous. Eight identify as Hispanic or Latinx. 73 are white, 52 are black. There are 200, sorry, the 2024 Lawrence demographics captures a total of 96,638 peoples living in Lawrence. Of those 96,000, 77.2% are white, 8.9 are two or more races, 5.9% are Asian, and just 4.8% are African American and black. We represent 37% of those incarcerated and less than 5% of the total population. 
Violence in all of its forms is a public health issue because it impacts both physical and mental health, and we know that like other violence, police violence is preventable. So what does healing look like? What would it look like if we were to address the legacy of racial injustice directly rather than by proxy? The way forward is to call these crimes by their true name and fully face the harms they cause, even before we know how to put things right. Always remember that there are a wealth of things that you can and should do to celebrate and support the community of individuals of African descent all year long. You can support creation and implementation for local housing reparations programs. You can partner with black-owned businesses and black-owned businesses and use them as vendors and support economic development. You could fund Douglas County doulas who have served almost 50 families, families so far, assisting in eliminating the black maternal health and infant mortality rate. You could buy black art from black artists, literature, black music, performing arts. You can support black drag. You can believe black women. You can believe black women when we tell y'all white feminism is just white supremacist delusion bound up in a pink bow. You can believe black people when we tell y'all anti-blackness is a gateway drug. Where there's anti-blackness, there is ethno-racism. Where there is anti-blackness, there is sexism and gender violence. Where there is anti-blackness, there is heterosexism and transphobia. Where there is anti-blackness, there is ableism. Where there is anti-blackness, there is fatphobia. Where there is anti-blackness, where there is anti-blackness, where there is anti-blackness, there is classism. White supremacist delusion is an equal opportunity destroyer, and it does not care who wields it, and it doesn't care whom it is used against. If your working community is not liberatory, then it's not transformative. And if it's not transformative, then it's not truly healing. Happy Black History Month, and happy Black Futures Century. Thank you. Thank you. All right. Whereas in observance of Black History Month, the city of Lawrence recognizes African Americans for their significant contribution to the shaping of our nation's identity and strengthening our country through high moral values and unyielding commitment to family, community, and service. And whereas during Black History Month, which is recognized by many countries, we celebrate the countless achievements and long-lasting contributions made by African Americans to our economic, cultural, and political development, and whereas the city of Lawrence is committed to diversity, equity, and inclusion as a fundamental characteristic of a healthy, vibrant, thriving city, the presence and visibility of black and African-American community continues to enhance the quality of life in the city of Lawrence. And whereas the city of Lawrence recognizes the historical injustices faced by black and African-American people through targeted racial discrimination and violence, which conflicts with our core mission and vision, and whereas the city of Lawrence continues its efforts towards becoming a more equitable and inclusive community in which all residents past, present, and future are respected and recognized for their contributions. And whereas the Black History Month calls our nation's attention to the continued need to recognize and combat racism and build a community that lives up to our core values. Now, therefore, I, Bart Littlejohn, mayor of the city of Lawrence, Kansas, do hereby proclaim the month of February 2024 as Black History Month. In the city of Lawrence, we encourage all of our community to take this opportunity to reflect on the past and present achievements of the black community as demonstrated by overcoming systemic challenges. Let us all work hard to ensure freedom, equity, and inclusion for all.
right. I will move us on to the next item, um, public comment. The public is allowed to speak on issues or items not scheduled for the discussion on the agenda. Comments should be limited to issues and items germane to the business of the governing body. The mission will not discuss, debate, or make decisions on items presented during this time. Members of the public will be limited to three minutes for comments. All right. Anyone in the room here for public comments start us off? Okay, I'm not seeing anyone. I'm um, Sherry. Anyone on Zoom? Stephen Watts. Um, hi. Thank you for the time. Um, you know, I found out that. Lawrence Memorial Hospital workers are not given Christmas as a paid holiday. Thanksgiving either. If they want to be paid for the holiday, they are required to use their vacation time. Our town just authorized a $20,000 pay increase for the hospital executive despite a million dollar loss. How can that be? I don't want to hear about the town commission doesn't run the hospital. Yes, you do. The town runs the hospital via the board of directors who are all appointed by this very commission. The town runs the hospital. There are two appointments on the horizon, and I certainly hope that people can be put on the board of directors who are reflective of the people in the town and not the moneyed interests exclusively. Next, let's talk about the Community Police Oversight Work Group, which began in June of 2022, and yet here we are with nothing. There was a meeting yesterday, unannounced pretty much, when you get right down to it. There were four police people there, two lawyers appointed by Ms. Larson during her town time as mayor, and one lawyer in the bank for the town on a Zoom meeting. What kind of a joke is going on with this? And, you know, it, that's pretty much all I want to ask. It is a rhetorical question, and I have asked there to be information. I have requested the information through the process and nobody responds. I was told by the town executive team, contact the consultant. I did contact the consultant and I sent those emails or I forwarded them to our current mayor to document the reality that, hey, we're requesting information, but it just doesn't come. Thank you. Chris Flowers. Hi, um, this is Chris Flowers, and I was just thinking today um, about the homeless situation. Um, we, we hear how it's um, we need to be united, like the the county and the city need to be reunite need to be united in the pro in fighting the problem. 
and kind of recognizing what our roles are, I was just thinking there's actually, I, I, I think there might be a third um, party and that party is KU. Cause I was just thinking the other day how there used to be the Stouffer apartments that were for like, um, non-traditional non people, but like, um, people with kids. Um, I, I forget all the groups, but it seemed like it was affordable housing. And what KU did was like, um, I forget how long ago it's been, maybe 2016-ish, but they tore those down and they built new ones. And the people that are living there now, they are definitely not the same type of people that were living in the past, the old ones. So I was just thinking, if KU tore down a, a whole, I mean, there must have been at least 100 units of those old apartments, and they tore all those down that were for Poor, like poor people and their affordable housing. And I kind of remember when we approved that, they was asked, what's good? Well, are you going to replace that type of housing? I think KU's response was no, that those people can go find the housing in the rest of the city. So it's just like if, if KU tears down housing that is affordable and their solution is those people go find it in the rest of the city, doesn't that make KU kind of responsible in some ways for our our problem if we're saying we have an affordable housing problem and KU tore down their affordable housing units? I, I think KU does have a part to play. And also it's, it could be said like this. If there are homeless people that are KU students, shouldn't KU be doing more when they get these people to move here to make sure that they're they're not going to end up homeless like it just seems kind of bs for ku to be bringing in people that end up homeless here without them also because it's like well we're 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 paying for them you know if they're using our services ku's getting their their um their tuition money but we're paying for for the pro the other problems that I I don't know it just seems kind of BS that K that we we should be asking KU to do more for their for their homeless students. Thank you, Chris. You know that's time. Thank you. That's all the comments, Mayor. Okay, <clears throat> I'll move us on to our next item: the consent agenda. Items on the consent agenda are considered under one motion and approved by one motion. Members of the governing body may remove items for separate discussion. Members of the public may remove, remove items identified as quasi-judicial for separate discussion. Members of the public will be limited to three minutes for comments. Would any of the commission like to remove any items? Nope. May I like to remove E, 8, B as in boy. Okay. Any anything else? No. I move to approve the consent agenda. Oh, there's no quasi-judicial, right? No. I don't. I don't see any. Before I made the motion, I yeah. yeah. Um, um, I would move to approve the consent agenda with the exception of E8B. I'll second that motion. All right, I have a first and a second. All those in favor, please say aye. 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 
Looks like five zero, none opposed. All right, um, that moves us on to item F, items removed for separate vote, and item E, 8B. Commissioner Sellers? Yeah. Um, I don't know if Porter is on. I did request and notified staff that I would be pulling this. I just had some questions in regards to the process of the awardees, of the awards. I noticed that there were two separate categories. I just had some questions in regards to just overall thoughts on the evaluation, the changing of it, and just wanted to be able to ask staff those questions. So I don't know. I didn't see if Porter was on or not. Wonderful. There you are. Sorry. Mayor. So Porter, I was looking at the um, report and I noticed of the 75,000 that was given out, you did several mini grants for this one. And then um, it looks like the report said that there were six that were provided. That's correct. Okay. There, initially we were gonna do five, but they decided with the way the um, scoring broke out that they wanted to add one more so they did six mini grants and then the regular grants okay so then the eight that didn't so of the two that didn't receive of the total eight was it that they didn't meet the criteria or well one the the original thought was to offer five mini grants um but basically yes i would say that the the two that were not funded were um didn't meet the level of scoring that the others did, and that's why they chose to give those six grants instead of just five. Okay. And then I was looking at how the award, how the awards were provided based on percentage funding and the different programs that applied and just wanted to know your thoughts. I, I mean, usually we hear about these and I didn't hear anything. I did hear from a couple of the organizations that applied for funding and just didn't know if you felt like there were some cultural gaps, value gaps through the process as to some with the funding. Because we had quite a few that weren't funded. Is there a reason why ones didn't qualify and what were some of the repeat patterns as to why some of those that didn't receive any funding weren't, weren't given any dollars? First and foremost, the total ask for the community arts grants this year was $182,691. And the uh, Cultural Arts Commission had $75,000 to grant. So that's, that's the number one um, impact is that to, and they, they looked at different, that's where the percentages come from, that they want to distribute as many funds as they can, but obviously they're limited. So they use that if you look at the score sheet that's designed to show the um, over and under standard deviations to help them see beyond just the scoring what their group scoring looked like and so that's what they reference and they chose to um, grant you know as far down the list as they felt comfortable giving reasonable grants to benefit the program without you know frankly watering the grants down too much by trying to spread them too thin, which they have done in previous years, particularly after um, COVID, they you know they they wanted to grant as much as possible. But I think they determined that they wanted to um, provide grants that had real impact. Okay. So as far as those that were not awarded any funds, was there any? guidance, discussion provided to them as to why they weren't awarded or? 
I guess I'm trying to understand the process through. So for those who didn't receive any funding, was there any rationale provided as to why they didn't receive any funding or? Um, not specifically, one group asked to see the scoring sheet, which I provided, um, so that they could see the criteria that this is based on. But beyond that, I would encourage people, if they're curious, to reach out. Um, I think I'd have to steer them back to the video of the Cultural Arts Commission meeting for them to you know, hear what the discussion was by the Cultural Arts Commission members. Okay. Mayor, that's all the questions I had for now. Okay. Um, any other, any further questions? No, sir. Okay. All right. I will go ahead and open this up for public comment. Not, oh, okay. Good evening. My name is Nicole Riles with the LRM Foundation a nonprofit. I would like to speak to this issue um, in the forms of trying to establish um, a process that represents equity in the sense of the distribution of funds. We were a first time applicant this year, and I did take notice that there were some larger events, um, particularly one event that uh, scored at the top of the tier was fully funded, as well as that same event being fully funded in the previous year. So I'm wondering just um, if there's a, a conversation or a awareness of how to um, increase equity in the sense of how those funds are distributed. For some of these events, um, you know, a partial grant would at least help lift the event up and give it some sort of sustainability for that uh, program. Uh, so I would just want to echo um, that and and offer that insight into trying to um, find a way where there aren't small there aren't larger events that are repeatedly funded because they're they're consistently hitting at the top of the scoring table and we find a way to distribute those funds in an equitable manner so some of the smaller organizations some of the one-time events have an opportunity to receive those grant funds thank you Thank you. Any further public comment here in the room? All right, Sherry on Zoom. Stephen Watts. All right, thank you. Uh, it's just ever so incredible what commissioners want to inquire about. When we have a police force policy which permits police to attack people below the neck with their hands, knees, elbows, etc., and it's not reportable, but we're going to worry about Steven. a couple of hundred dollars for uh, what do you call it? Culture. Stephen, is this? Uh, I. I Oh, that's in relation to the money that is being okay. approved that the commissioner was asking questions about, Mayor. Okay. On to the next one. Let us review the number of drug-related special events our town focuses on. And when I say drug-related special events, I'm talking about ethanol, the dope of choice in our town, alcohol. Our town encourages <laughs> and it funds these special events even though the downtown business community complains about dope usage. Well, those are by the homeless, but so that's uh, just an opportunity to talk about it, Mayor. Thank you. Thank you. That's all the comments. 
Okay. I'll go ahead and bring us back. Um, I, I'm sorry. Go ahead. Sorry. Back to the issue at hand. I'm not sure what Jermaine is, Mr. Watts was speaking to on this. Um, this was in regards to the process and has nothing to do with the germaneness of our work group as a, you know, if he wants to couch it under boards and commissions, maybe that would be a weak germane argument, but I was talking about the process. Um, so Mr. Watts's comments were technically out of order. What I wanted- May I respond? Please mute Mr. Watts, please. Thank you. Um, what I wanted to bring to attention is that Again, you know, the cultural arts funds and the, and the TGT advisory fund gives out TGT funds, and it's all under the transient guest tax. So we had two particular events that applied for funds to both. So essentially, they were double dipping and received 100% funding out of both account out of both um, funding streams. And so this is uh, this is a this is an opportunity for us to address a value gap. This is not a critique. Um, I don't feel like I need to parse my words, but I'm deciding for the occasion to do so, um, so that this is not the angry black woman attacking anyone. This is me stating that we're talking about cultural arts dollars, and we have different metrics within our cultural arts survey that talks about how does our community see itself in the things that we do. And it's hard for the community to see itself in the things that they do when they can't get the funding to be able to see, this, see themselves in the things that they do. So this is just an opportunity for us to dig a little bit deeper, stretch a little bit wider, and maybe bring some folks to the table that are not at the table to be able to have these discussions so that we can become more cu culturally competent in how we um, disperse dollars. I love the idea of the mini grants and that we, those are starter dollars for different groups. We've talked about this um, under the Explorer Lawrence Advisory Board and things that we thought about could be, how dollars could be reallocated under the TGT. Um, because there are, I, I want to be able to see these funds go, and I know it's very limited but with the dollars that we can do. And sometimes we're try, groups are trying to make a dollar out of 15 cents with these. But the bottom line is, is that you have programs that are continuously coming to the well to us to sustain their projects, which means that that's taking away dollars from other, organ other organizations and other groups to emerge and be a cultural value to our community. So just wanted to bring this out because once again, this is another example of how we're, we're kind of missing the mark and it's not intentional, but it's just a way for us to open up and, and, and use this as a teachable moment again to see what can we do or what are the what systems and what actions are we doing that might be perpetuating some of the things that we're saying that we're advocating for. So that was all, Mayor. Mm -hmm. um, I had a follow-up question for Porter. Um, how often is uh, um, the matrix or system that uh, Ms. Riles was referring to, how, is, how often is that reviewed or under review? Um, actually, we, we review it every year. Um, admittedly, after COVID, things were sort of thrown out of whack. But at the um, the Cultural Arts Commission held their retreat this year, and, and they definitely want to review this again. Uh, the other issue, frankly, is that the TGT grant program is, is somewhat under question with the uh, Board and Commission Committee recommendations as to what, what the future of that holds. So, um, and we have to remember too, just for to to uh, Commissioner Sellers' point, educationally, the TGT grant program was really set up for events, 
and the cultural arts grants were set up more for artist projects and that type of thing. So they are both cultural, but they lean in different ways for different purposes. Now all of that is under this um, office effectively. So point taken, you know, definitely want to look at that carefully and make sure we're implementing these things in an equitable manner. Right. And I would only add, similar to when we talked about the transit guest tax, um, you know, I, although certainly funding is not unlimited across the city, you know, I, I still, you know, strongly believe that we, you know, are, are looking at these events to see how they affect our, you know, our goals into our strategic plan and then fund them accordingly. And, and w when you have $75,000 or $71,000 to give out, you know, um, I mean, I kind of liked what Porter said is, hey, we had five or six really good projects, so we added $500 to fund something. You know, is it the best way to, to give a group of people a set amount of money and say, do what you can with that money? Or is it better to say, um, here are the goals we're trying to accomplish um, in our different areas, and how can we fund events in the community to help us reach those goals? And that might be, you know, $70,000, that might be $60,000, that might be $80,000. Um, but when you have a kind of predetermined amount, I think sometimes I've always struggled with this percentage thing and TGD to this too, that sometimes you get this random 48%. Like it's, you know, I mean, clearly they did 48% because they had, that's all the money they had left, you know, which is fine. But, um, I, I, with with what the process we gave, but the, like with the TGT, I I look forward to looking at the whole project, and then and then funding projects to help us meet our strategic plan. Um, however, that does fall. Yeah, I would. Just, Oops, go ahead. No, I was just going to make a quick point to that. To just just doing some fuzzy math of the dollars that were given away for the twin, for the TGT and for the. Um, Arts and culture was roughly two hundred twenty-five thousand dollars, and the top two um, awardees for both of those, which were the same. Which again, I'm not saying anything about these these events. These are all great events that I've participated in annually. Um, but of those dollars, they those two programs received roughly twenty-one percent of the of the funding. So. I think we have to be, I get your point, Commissioner Finkeldye, I think we gotta be careful, about, you know, when we say yes, it has to speak to the strategic plan, but if you look at these two events that receive 21% of the total amount, they do speak to, this procedure, to the strategic plan, so they can say, oh, that justifies it. It kinda does, but there's also other nuances to it that we have to be mindful of. Absolutely. But your point is well taken. I have a, qu a question for Porter. Is, has there been consideration given to um, looking at um, repetitive winners every year and and whether or not to start rotating some of those out? Is this more starter money? So keep in mind that the TGT grant program did have a mechanism where after um, any event received funding four consecutive years, they were gonna take a year off. That didn't happen because of COVID. So we haven't gone back to that um, at this point. So that's one. The other thing we have to remember is that the Cultural Arts Commission until the last two years did not have this amount of money. 
um, for granting. So this is, you know, this was raised, which is a good thing. Um, and so, you know, reviewing this and, and making sure it's aligning with the strategic plan, plan makes sense. That, sorry, I, I may have gone off on a tangent there. Did that answer your question, Commissioner Larson? I guess not, not totally. Um, has there, is there consideration to not continue it, con to revert back to that and not fund them every single year and make yes. them take a break? DGT side, yes, we were definitely talking about re-implementing that um, uh, rule, but again, I don't know what the future of TGT holds as far as that plays out. With community arts grants, I think um, that hasn't come up until recently with the additional funding. Um, and, and to Commissioner Sellers' point, um, I'm aware of the, the duplicate funding for different events. That's the first time that's really happened um, in this case. And yes, to her point as well, not, nobody did anything wrong on that. Um, it's just that we hadn't had both grant programs sort of running simultaneously. Uh, so there's, there's just factors like that have come in as we're, again, trying to get back on track after COVID and the impacts of that. So I would say, yes, we're definitely looking at all those um, circumstances, including what you mentioned about um, taking off years to make room for, for emerging events or emerging artists. Thank you. Vice Mayor Jeter. I think all my questions were answered. Thank you. <laughs> okay. All right. Any additional discussion or questions? Well, I was just going to, before... Um, Motion. Um, just wanted to say, we kind of talked about this a little bit when we got the first presentation on um, the committee on committees, and um, and I know I was virtual at that time, but I wanted to come back and stress that the Explore Lawrence Advisory Board spent a considerable amount of time talking about, you know, to the very things that were brought up about, do we need to. Um, do we need some, to roll some events off? Do we need to look at sustainability? Do we need to approach some of these front with the, to the city about making them city-sponsored events? And so a lot of that conversation was, I wanna say, lost in delivery that would have answered a lot of this way before we received the recommendations on that we received back in December. And so um, hopefully that we can, can you know, the work that uh, Porter is doing and and kind of getting caught up on uh, where some of those conversations were, with, uh, especially with the Explore Lawrence Advisory Board, will help to continue to move some of this along. So, um, with that being said, I move that we approve the 2024 Transient Guest Tax Grant recommend. Oh, is that the right one? Hold on, <laughs> hold on. I'm in the wrong date. Pause. There, I move that we approve the 2024 Cultural Arts Grants as reviewed and recommended by the Cultural Arts Commission. Second. I have a first and a second. All those in favor, please say aye. Aye. None opposed, passes 5-0. Thank you. Thank you, Porter. Porter. Thank you, Porter. All right, um, go ahead and move us to item G, work session. Um, the work session provides an opportunity for the city commission to discuss items in greater detail. The commission will take no binding action on items presented during this time. Work session topics are eligible for public comment. Members of the public will be limited to three minutes for comments. All right. Hello, Brett. 
Good morning, or good evening, Mayor and Commissioner. I'm just starting. For some. Have I been here? <laughs> uh, Britt Crumcano, Economic Development Director. Uh, tonight, our uh, Prosperity and Economic Security presentation is on equitable entrepreneurship. We have three groups that are going to be uh, informing you of some of the work that's happening in this space. Uh, Sam Camp, our Economic Development Director, or uh, Analyst, <laughs> is... Um, going to also present and facilitate the presentations. Before I turn it over to him, though, I just wanted to remind everybody that for prosperity and economic security, the city of Lawrence fosters an environment that provides all people and businesses the opportunity for economic security and intentionally acknowledges, removes, and prevents barriers created by systemic and institutional injustice. Our community succeeds because of collective prosperity and a vibrant local economy. Um, tonight's topic falls into our equity and inclusion commitment area to ensure greater economic opportunities amongst historically marginalized populations, communities, and businesses, which affects our goals and our work in uh, PES5, which is the women and minority business ownership rates, PES6, the difference in median income by race, and PES7, area median income. So with that, I'm going to turn it over to Sam. Good evening, Commissioners. Uh, Sam Camp, Economic Development Analyst with the City. Um, so I'm going to go ahead and get us started, if I can. There we go. Then I'll have everybody out. Um, so just an overview of the different groups we're going to have here tonight. Um, uh, we're going to start with a look at the uh, partnership that's, that the city is working on with the National League of Cities through their city entrepreneurship, uh, inclusive entrepreneurship initiatives. Um, we're going to have the group from Forward Cities um, and Equitable through their equitable entrepreneurship ecosystem work uh, that was brought on by the county. And then lastly, we're gonna end on um, uh, the collaborative two-year strategic plan that Black 30 and Douglas County Corps are working on. Um, so I'm excited to, to bring us into um, this information on the, the city inclusive entrepreneurship uh, work. Um, so it's a program designed um, for the city, for city staff and local partners to commit to an inclusive entrepreneurship initiative um, that results in a tangible deliverable over the course of the year. Um, so we are working on three initiatives. Um, the first is uh, ecosystem resource mapping, entrepreneurship curriculum development, and the last anchor procurement. Um, so to go through, and I'll maybe just point out the very nice picture of your fellow commissioners and city manager, maybe a little small on the screen, but um, so through these programs um, with NLC, they require us to identify an initiative lead either with the city or through uh, a local partner. Um, we are also paired up with a program partner. This is either a nonprofit or, or for-profit entity um, that the League of Cities has identified that is an, an expert in doing this work. Um, a, a, measurable output uh, as well as an, an intangible outcome that we see um, similar to what we're, what we're talking about in our strategic plan. Uh, so for this ecosystem resource mapping, um, I'm taking uh, the initiative lead role for that at the city. Um, our program partner will be SourceLink or KC SourceLink if uh, that's more familiar. Um, our output for this program uh, will be, we'll conduct uh, an ecosystem resource analysis. Um, we're gonna produce in partnership a resource map. Um, this will be a tangible, the easiest way to visualize it is a very nice, very fancy looking spreadsheet um, where on the x-axis we will list all of the organizations um, 
particularly nonprofit um, or free resources or organizations in town um, that can offer resources to entrepreneurs. And on the y-axis um, is typically the type of resource. Um, and then lastly, uh, they will help, uh, SourceLink will help develop a report on the existing ecosystem conditions and recommendations for improvement. Um, our outcome for this program uh, will be that Lawrence entrepreneurs have an easy to access tool um, that reduces hurdles in resource navigation when they're, when they're starting or growing their business. And that local organizations um, who provide these resources are able to identify those gaps in services and work collabor collaboratively to close them. Um, I'm going to have Taylor Overton with Black 30 just come up and share her project. Hello, my name is Taylor Overton with Black 30. Um, potentially. Okay. Um, so I had the opportunity to join um, a few of our then vice mayor, now mayor uh, and city manager, and then also commissioner sellers at um, the NLC National Conference in um, Atlanta previously. So uh, I had the opportunity to help select which initiatives that we would go after. So the one that I will be leading is the entrepreneurship curriculum, uh, and that is done through Kaufman Fast Track. Uh, I've seen Kaufman Fast Track in other communities and how it is contributing to uh, the growth of entrepreneurs. But one of the focus areas that I think is extremely valuable is that we are not looking at uh, completions. So we're not graded on how many people graduate from Kaufman Fast Track. We are graded on enrollments and how many individuals maybe go into the program and then decide entrepreneurship isn't for them. However, they do still leave with that growth mindset and that entrepreneurial focus to where if they go into the workplace, they're bringing those entrepreneurial skills and are able to develop and grow with their small and local businesses still in mind. Uh, so I think that this curriculum is fantastic. I've reached out to counterparts um, across the state who are either in our cohort or um, are facilitating Coffin Fast Track as a current affiliate um, to kind of guide us and identify how we will grow. All of the facilitators for Kaufman Fast Track will be local business owners. Um, we have a, a tech entrepreneur, uh, two tech entrepreneurs, uh, a black entrepreneur in the legal space, um, an accountant. So really giving all of our business owners and aspiring business owners um, a well-rounded view of what business is prior to diving in or early in that, that stage. So the outcome, um, we will have at least 10 entrepreneurs. Right now that number is at 18 entrepreneurs go through the first um, cohort of Fastman, wow, Kaufman Fast Track is what it's called. Um, and that will be done in partnership with Black 30 as well as Douglas County Core. Thank you. Yeah, and then for anchor procurement, um, Monique Mercurio with Art Love Collective and Black Third. You can just speak on that for a second. Hello, my name is Monique Mercurio. I am from the Ohlone Coastal and Esalen Nation. I am also a um, indigenous business owner as well as the director of operations for Art Love Collective, and I am the lead for the anchor procurement. Um, when you think. When you hear of unmistakably Lawrence, you think of inclusivity, community, culture, arts, universities, and an opportunity for something great. But deep down at Lawrence's core, economic opportunities are not always inclusive or easily navigable. Large corporations that choose to call Lawrence home, like KU, LMH, 
City of Lawrence, USD 497, Douglas County, Maximus, and Barry Gold, just to name a few. Global, sorry. Um, they've established their economic footprints here, and they are creating jobs and infrastructure. But they can contribute to our economy even further by util utilizing our local businesses for their supply chain needs. But this is a twofold situation. We can easily identify our local businesses, but it's not always easy to identify our visible and non-visible diverse businesses, such as women-owned, LGBTQ, neurodivergent, BIPOC, veterans, persons with disabilities. If those businesses are not developing their competitive advantage and capacity, then they, we, still are at a disadvantage. So we need to create more capacity building opportunities by doing so, and by doing so, we are, at, um, we are providing our local businesses with the support, knowledge, and access they need to provide services and prices accessible to these anchor institutions and capital providers. Putting a project in the hands of the people who have done the work, collected the data, navigated these systems themselves, <coughs> will ensure the thoroughness of a job well done. And that is what makes our anchor procurement commitment unmistakably Lawrence. Thank you. And to add on what Monique has just shared, um, I reached out to city manager uh, Craig to ask if we could add a third uh, initiative for the city because I thought that it played in very well. So we identify through asset mapping who are our capital providers, who are the actors on that actor map, if you will. Then we have an opportunity to build capacity and then finally advocate for those suppliers in supply chains, right? So I think that that builds a really holistic package for not only our entrepreneurs to become educated or have that additional learning opportunity, but then what do we do with that once we've identified it? We're able to apply that into the supply chain or a com more competitive marketplace here in Lawrence. So adding all three of those together, I think brings a great perspective and a great opportunity for our, our businesses here in Lawrence. Yeah, so at the city, we're really excited to get under underway with all of this work. Um, and it's, I didn't include it in the presentation, but just for, for everyone's knowledge, um, working with NLC, they put us on a kind of a timeline. And so the idea is that these initiatives and all of their outputs are completed by August 2024. Um, so moving on, I have uh, Nicole Riles and the group from Forward Cities come up and speak on their work. <coughs> Good evening again. Um, I am Nicole Riles uh, with LRM Foundation, as well as Kay and Riles Therapy and Consulting, um, an entrepreneur here in Lawrence. And I'm presenting along with um, uh, Christina Mees Edwards, who will introduce herself a little later. And I believe we may have a couple of people on Zoom, uh, Jill Jolliker and Connie Fitzpatrick, who might chime in as well. But um, we are here uh, to give an update regarding the E3 um, entrepreneurial listening project that we started uh, last February. See if Jill's on. Yeah, sorry. Thanks, Nicole. There we go. Um, so I just briefly want to talk about um, uh, where we, how we got to this point um, and go back almost a year. Um, we had partners with, um, including 
City of Lawrence Network Kansas and Douglas County, um, along with the Community Foundation um, and the Lawrence Chamber, um, all partnered up to be able to bring forward cities to Douglas County to convene the E3 Cities um, Entrepreneurial Equitable Entrepreneurial Ecosystem Building Event. Um, so. What happened during that session is that we were able to gather for a, the development of a strategy workshop that Ford Cities facilitated as part of that national tour. And the following framing question is what guided that strategic conversation, and that is how might we foster an ecosystem culture that equitably centers and values entrepreneurial leaders of color? What came out of that, um, and as part of that um, that engagement with Ford Cities, um, was they went out and they engaged directly with entrepreneurs of color in the community. So you see, you see here um, from Freddie Gip with Lead Horse, um, he talks about the 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 pivot that he felt that they were they had to make in terms of stepping back from the consulting knowledge provider um, stakeholder engaged in some of the community work that had been done historically um, because he didn't feel like his perspective and what he was bringing in terms of the um, the, the work he was doing to build um, a cultural ecosystem here he didn't feel there was value in it you see um, expressions of not being valued as an asset um, in some of the comments that were shared by um, Watson's Barbershop by Martin. Um, and then you also see some of the quotes here from um, the owners of La Estrella talking about some of the obstacles that they experienced. So these really primed us to be really listening to our entrepreneurs in the community and uh, motivate us to make progress. Um, so when we convened um, and we worked to develop uh, and, and made a commitment to how we were gonna make progress moving forward, we identified the assets that we had available to us and that we thought we can contribute to the future state um, that articulated the framing question that, we, um, that I shared earlier and considered how the assets we have available to us could be linked and leveraged and aligned into some new strategic opportunities. We identified these three strategic opportunities, um, entrepreneur listing project that you're gonna hear a lot about um, um, the, tonight, um, multilingual resource project and indigenous leadership connections. What ended, what started out being three distinct projects and work groups has in a very nice way coalesced into what we believe um, can really be encapsulated into what we're calling today the Entrepreneur Listening Project. Um, that project, what, what we're, that project really does nicely encapsulate and provide on and off ramps to what we aim to do with the Multilingual Resource Project and the Indigenous Leadership Connections while not while not giving away or losing any of the things that we, we sought out when we made those commitments back in February. Um, we, we, we developed some uh, consensus. Um, I talked about that already about how we can consolidate efforts um, and that consolidation under, this, under a single project, that being the Indigenous Listing Project was in a lot of ways just um, a reality check amongst a lot of us. Um, acknowledging that we don't have a lot of capacity. Um, while we have partners um, with the city and the county um, and some of our other institutional stakeholders that have been involved in this work, the leaders of this work are have been on the entrepreneurs of color that are passionate about making this, um, see, seeing this become an, a reality. We wanted this to be led by those entrepreneurs of color and leaders in our community and um, their capacity to do that is, is fairly limited. 
when, unless we have ongoing um, support for them um, in a financial and systemic, systemically meaningful way. So we've consolidated to try to make progress um, on our initial goal. And here, and you're going to hear about that today um, in terms of the pilot project that uh, is the Entrepreneur Listening Project. So once we began uh, convening um, from that talk session back in February, uh, shaped out the entrepreneur, entrepreneurial listening project. Uh, we started with bi-monthly meetings, and these were this is representative of uh, people that were were present. Some um, therefore to support and to encourage, and others were very active participants um, in this work, which we'll hear about um, as we go through tonight. Um, around July and August, uh, a significant thing happened in that, as Jill said, we combined these three projects into one. And this is where we um, extended the leadership. M my role was chief doing officer. We also had Christina Mees Edwards, who came on as a project lead, along with Connie uh, Fitzpatrick and Taylor Overton, who also came on as project leads. And this was significant because um, at, at the same time we were talking about developing these listening opportunities for entrepreneurs, um, these three individuals, uh, Christina, Connie, and Taylor, were doing work in their own communities by engaging entrepreneurs. Um, Black 30 had come on board and had started to develop a space of comfort and networking for businesses of color. Connie um, does amazing work in the community, uh, Hispanic community, and Christine and her team at the uh, Kansas, the KU Small Business Development Center has always been a, a really um, supportive, solid kind of uh, peace in the community with entrepreneurs. So we began to talk about how to shape out survey development and the listening session. And we decided to have two listening projects. So the first project was a project that was in September. It was hosted by Black 30. And this project was centered around um, kind of an all-inclusive in the sense of people of color, entrepreneurs of color. So the idea was to engage as many people as we could. Um, we had 26 participants that came to that in-person. Uh, there were nine interviews that were done uh, that day. We had uh, 15 people that completed a survey. And then the business types that were represented were professional services, financial services, and retail services. Uh, the next project that we did, uh, well, one thing to point out about this project, and uh, it was captured through uh, videography with 78785 Productions, as well as photographer uh, Catter got Catter. Carter Gaskin, sorry, um, helped capture us uh, with his photography services. So again, engaging entrepreneurs into this project was a part of the, the pathway that we took. The second one was on October 21st, and this one was hosted. Oh, <laughs> oh, go ahead. Yeah, the second one was hosted um, by La Australia um, Restaurant here in Lawrence. This this particular one was really unique and um, enjoyable because this was a Spanish speaking 
listening session. So it was, uh, we were immersed in the Spanish language. It was not a process of translating what we were saying into uh, Spanish and into English. It was really that the uh, entrepreneurs were invited to come be in this space. We had 18 participants. There were five interviews. There was a number of sectors that were represented and all of the um, conversation happened in Spanish with the exception of a very few times where there was some translation uh, as requested. So Christine is going to speak um, a little to this particular project and then we will uh, show a video of some that kind of captures, um, I'm sorry, Connie is going to speak to this project and then we'll show um, a video a little later about some of the things that we've captured. Thank you, Nicole. Uh, hello. Uh, hola. Uh, my name is Connie Fidel Fitzpatrick, Food Systems Specialist for Douglas County. Uh, with the support of the E3 team, I co-led the listening session in Spanish. This event took place at La Estrella Tienda Mexicana. That is a local mom and pop Mexican grocery store and restaurant. Um, like Nicole mentioned, this happened in October of 23. La Estrella serves a community hub for many Latinos and Spanish speakers in Douglas County. The vast majority of the attendees are blue, uh, who attended this listening session are blue-collar workers who have worked in their respective fields for at least uh, one decade. And for many of those who have uh, worked, of many attendees have also worked um, uh, two decades or more. Entrepreneurs who are ready, uh, these are entrepreneurs who are ready to transition from being low-wage workers to contribute in our local economic um, system as business owners. All attendees express the need to access resources in their primary language, being in Spanish. Having access to bilingual English, Spanish-speaking staff throughout our local economic development system would support the advancement of local Latino entrepreneurship. So I look forward to coming back and presenting additional data and findings from this work. Thanks. Thank you, Connie. So here are a few uh, photos from both events. Um, we had a great opportunity at, um, inspired by Black 30 to do headshots of participants. So in partnership, um, with Carter Gaskins Photography. Everyone who participated at both events had the opportunity to do a professional headshot that they could use to promote their business in the future, as well as some general photography and videography that was taken at that time. So this is a video that I will share, um, gives you a sneak peek into the listening project. Um, successful, then the full community is successful.
Oops. Okay, right here. Oh, nope. Next one. This one? Mm -hmm. Perfect, thank you. So some of our key learnings, of course, um, we, we found stories transcended language barriers. Um, as uh, Connie spoke to, we were inspired by a number of BIPOC entrepreneurs who are leveling up, you know, and our goal to create agency. Um, as she mentioned, many people working in service to others for years are ready to um, venture out and be their own boss and really help to establish wealth um, within themselves and their own families and um, see it as a way out of, out of poverty. We also really are expressing the need to celebrate the entrepreneur of color first, you know, celebrate who they are, the richness that they bring, as well as what they bring through their service, through their businesses, and certainly hearing a number of people who are passionate about the work they do and are wanting the opportunity to continue in that work. Um, Christina is going to come and talk about some uh, specific key learnings and takeaways from the Small Business Development Center. So hello everyone, my name is Christina, parentheses, Meese Edwards, um, and I'm the Regional Director at the KU Small Business Development Center, and I just wanted to share some of our perspectives as an existing entrepreneurial support group from our experience in this event. So, over the last year, we have participated in the planning of the listening projects, and the two concepts I wanted to incorporate into the work are intentionality and authenticity. The goal of this work was to not check a box, so to speak, but to authentically listen to entrepreneurs and business owners of color to understand their perspectives, hear their stories, listen to their needs, and take what we've learned to create real institutional change. As an organization that is entirely composed of people of color, our personal experiences certainly influence how we operate, and we like to think that we're an inclusive organization, but we needed to recognize that our personal experiences, backgrounds, perspectives, do not encompass all the different lived experiences of the entrepreneurs that we serve. So we decided as an entire center to invest in learning. I personally believe that in order to create real systematic change, we need to seek to understand rather than being understood. And Forward Cities presented an opportunity for us to do just that. We were given the opportunity to sit back and really listen. In our line of work, we often find ourselves at the forefront of initiatives. Thus, it was refreshing to participate in an environment where our role was secondary. Here, the direction was driven by those we aimed to serve and uplift. The event gave rise to new thought leaders who might have not otherwise had a platform to share their experiences. Their voices are crucial, particularly in decision-making spaces where they're seldom heard. This realization underscores the need to expand our engagement beyond traditional channels. Following the listen se listening session, my team and I convened to reflect on our learning. We were genuinely surprised and inspired by the insights gained, and I see tangible opportunity to reshape how we deliver service, how we um, reshape our community interactions and approach to navigating the entrepreneurial landscape. This transformation is rooted in our commitment to intentional and authentic listening. So we really appreciated the experience and we're excited to share some of what we've learned based on the interviews that we've taken. Thank you. Thank you. And just to continue on uh, reiterating, uh, centering the value on people, 
um, centering those BIPOC voices, uh, really encouraging, inspiring people to uh, to bring their their themselves to the space, not to shrink in spaces. Um, really dismantling the narrative, the false narrative that you know we as people of color are broken, and recognizing the systemic inequities that contribute to struggles and and barriers that people are facing. So. Um, we also recognize that when we talk about equity as it relates to entrepreneurs, sometimes that means resources and funding are redistributed or people are diversifying how they, uh, how they spend and what they do and how money is allocated and how uh, funding is allocated for, for certain events. Um, we are really trying to impress the need to get resources to the entrepreneur themselves, right? To get the resources to their businesses, to get the services, people accessing their services, and really um, really impressing that until you empower the entrepreneur through direct service, direct funding, um, you really are, are not helping them as, as much as we can. So a number of things are coming out and shaping out of this conversation that we're excited about. Over the next month, we're we're going to continue finalizing the impact video. Then we're going to segue into presenting our outcomes to e-community and other stakeholders. Um, as Connie said, we hope to be back in the future to really give the fullness of what we've discovered. And we also are talking about how do we sustain this work. And Jill has been a key factor in helping uh, shape that out and what that possibly looks like. So I want to ask her to uh, speak to that, and we will wrap up. Thanks, Nicole. Um, we're taking a hard look at um, what are, what it's needed immediately and what's going to be needed in the ongo in the future to sustain um, the work that's been done. What are the what are the funding look like, and how do we and how do we sustain those investments, and how do we do it in a meaningful and um, systemic way that's reflective of the way that. Um, our organizations, the county, the city, um, and, and other um, institutional partners, um, how they do that, we do that with other organizations. We're going to continue to explore ways to um, incorporate multicultural work, um, entrepreneurship, food systems, heritage, and cultural preservation into Douglas County programs. Um, Connie's position was recently expanded so that she's going to be, there's going to be even more capacity um, available to um, fostering um, as many entrepreneurship and economic development opportunities within the food systems that we have in Douglas County as possible through Douglas County's um, sustainability um, department um, that Connie works within. Um, we're going to continue to think about um, having some sort of a dedicated position in programs to do equitable ecosystem building full time. We think that that's important and having a position dedicated to that is important. And so we're gonna to continue to advocate for that and explore where that fits most. And then this work started um, and was identified as a need in the previous five year um, anti-poverty community health plan that the county has led and it will stay a part of the next five year anti-poverty community health plan, um, specifically working to advance those equitable entrepreneurial ecosystems. This this chart is this is this is the best um, uh, illustration of what we're looking for. What what the theory of change looks like um, from our friends at, at um, Forward Cities when they came here back in February. This is what we're looking for. That um, and how we're how we're going to um, um, 
um, see that theory of change, how, how change will happen. Um, we, we see we start with the narratives um, down at the bottom that that's the work that you heard about in the Entrepreneur Listening Project. Um, and through that those narratives and that storytelling, we're able to um, identify where we need to have deeper relationships, where we maybe need to transfer power um, and share power from places where it hasn't been before. And how does that translate up to policies, programs, and capital um, that can sustain this work into the future? This is our vision for how we can make that what we what we've laid out today happen in the future. And this is what we just want to keep this in everyone's mind as we move forward. Okay, thank you. Thank you all. Yeah, thank you, Nicole, and everyone else. Um, so I know we've, we've thrown a lot at you, but we're going to wrap it up um, with Douglas County Core and Black 30, their two-year strategic plan. Hi, Commissioners. I'm Kyle Johnson with Core. I'm Devontae Green uh, with Black 30. Um, so. Both Core and Black 30 are led by entrepreneurs, so we have lived experience with the kinds of challenges that entrepreneurs face and the kinds of things that they need in order to overcome those challenges. We're developing a system-based approach uh, for cu cultivating and creating entrepreneurial talent, and this system includes a large and growing network of resource providers uh, in our area. Think of these essentially as gears that can or should fit together uh, in our entrepreneurial machine, and we're kind of figuring out how how can these fit together uh, so that we can uh, develop a, a thriving economy for entrepreneurs. So in developing <clears throat> this, this partnership between Black 30 and CORE, um, and you've heard this echoed throughout tonight, there's a need to develop a clear roadmap for our entrepreneurs to not only identify what is available to them in this community as a resource, um, but also how they can leverage those and when it's appropriate to leverage those and to activate those. Um, this will, this partnership and this roadmap will also help the entrepreneurial support organizations identify where there might be necessary or unnecessary duplications and provide an opportunity for us to identify what gaps are still there um, so that we can plug in those gaps. Um, ultimately, it is just terribly difficult for an entrepreneur to learn all that they need to do and to be an entrepreneur while also spending so much of their time, effort, and resources navigating um, where those resources are. So we want to take that, um, that hard work out uh, for them and make it a little bit easier. Part of the, uh, the infrastructure that um, is needed for this roadmap um, just consists of different programs um, and different opportunities for um, our entrepreneurs to, to shine and to grow. Um, as you can see really from this list, you have these large buckets and then there are these subgroups within the buckets. This is ultimately to demonstrate that there is no shortage of work to be done here in this in this space. Currently as it stands, there is way more work to be done than there are people who are stepping up and able to, um, to do this work. Um, and really we want through this partnership and through continued partnerships to create a culture amongst our uh, entrepreneur support organizations um, that recognize all of this work and uh, don't try 
try and gatekeep from that work. There's so much work to go around. Why should any one person take ownership of just the pitch competition or just the educational points um, that are needed? So then all of those you know, logos on that slide there, right, um, need to ultimately fit in for the entrepreneur at the right time for that specific entrepreneur. So a late stage biotech company is different from a mid stage, you know, software company and different from an early stage restaurant retail, you know, kind of main street company. We all have very different needs by uh, stage and sector. Uh, so it's really important as we as resource providers, this collective, uh, you know, figure out our different capabilities, we map that to a roadmap that contextually makes sense for entrepreneurs. And when we have events and, you know, like whether it's a pitch competition or an inclusive holiday market, we identify, you know, people, entrepreneurs emerge from the ether that we didn't know uh, before that kind of event. And that gives us an opportunity to register them and then maybe have an intake call where we get to know them and we understand, all right, where are you at in the stage of building your business? What kind of business are you building? Okay, great. Now we can kind of navigate as resource providers which kinds of assets we have in our community that they may need right now. And we can't just stop there and say, okay, great, our job is done. You know, that entrepreneur is going to continue to build their business and continue to need a different set of, of resources as they move through that timeline. And so we need to continue to check in and make sure, you know, we ask them, hey, how are you doing now? What, what's keeping you up at night? You know, and that may lead to then another connection. And this isn't Core and Black 30 kind of gatekeeping this roadmap. We all, all of our service providers need to be working on this kind of thing together so that no matter where an entrepreneur enters the ecosystem, they easily navigate to the resources that make the most sense. That's what's gonna to lead to more successful entrepreneurs in the community and case studies, which will then make it easier for other entrepreneurs to go, oh, I guess I can do that too. Now there's a system that I can easily plug into and I can find the right path for me. When we think about um, who we want this work to have impact on, um, we are inviting all entrepreneurs um, and in all entrepreneurs really emphasizing and centering around our most vulnerable communities, um, which tend to be some of the protected classes that you see lifted, uh, listed here, um, in addition to uh, entrepreneurs who are differently abled. Um, and also outside of thinking about those protected classes, creating the most diverse ecosystem that we possibly can. Um, in understanding that we need different, uh, we need entrepreneurs with a different type of focus. Uh, we need a diverse set of sectors to be represented, um, and we have to have entrepreneurs across um, the timeline of entrepreneurship, starting from ideation, going all the way into late entrepreneurship, and possibly selling um, their businesses. The framework and kind of inspiration behind. Um, 
this presentation uh, comes from lessons from, from Boulder. Um, we also all have lived experiences as entrepreneurs um, outside of the community of Lawrence, from the East Coast, from the West Coast, and other areas uh, within the Midwest. And generally, uh, these are kind of the, the top 10 lessons and, and guidelines um, that, that we've seen come out of ecosystem building. These top four, uh, being entrepreneurship or entrepreneurial led, um, thinking about longevity and the long-term commitment, ensuring that we have uh, an inclusive community represented, one that's reflective of our community, um, and having frequent events for our entrepreneurships uh, to engage in seem to be the most immediate um, and sort of low-hanging fruit where we can have impact. So then here's what this looks like essentially you know, in a calendar view, that every year we need to have this kind of programming calendar that, al uh, that aligns to the academic year. So a kickoff event in August where we announce, you know, here are the events this year. And this, again, shouldn't just be CORE's and Black 30's events, but all of the different uh, service providers kind of contributing to this entrepreneurially focused calendar. These gold stars are, in effect, the large quarterly events, and the blue dots are monthly kind of gatherings that are not necessarily just kind of social events, but there's a mix of content and social, because we all need to get to know each other and learn from each other. The, the big quarterly events essentially are like beacons. Uh, think of, you know, like, like Black 30's uh, inclusive holiday market. Uh, that was a huge success recently at the Leeds Center, 100 plus, you know, uh, entrepreneurs there uh, selling their goods. Um, also, course, pitch competition that we had last April. Those big events serve to get people out of the woodwork so that we can identify them, get to know them, and then enroll them in things like Fast Track and other kinds of programs, you know, get them to like a panel or a pitch session where they have an opportunity to practice. And then ultimately in December, you know, Fast Track graduation, inclusive holiday market, startup showcase, elevator pitch competition. And then do it again, <laughs> you know, January through April, culminating um, with another market, pitch competition, et cetera. And then this continuous feedback uh, loop, I guess, over the summer, you know, what went well, what didn't go well, you know, summarize that in an annual report, and then ultimately develop the strategy for the next year. If we do this kind of thing for a decade, uh, we will have, uh, within a few years, a lot more connective tissue between all of the different service providers so that this ecosystem gets much easier to navigate for early stage and aspiring entrepreneurs. And I think in the medium to long term, five to 10 years, we'll see a lot more jobs created by entrepreneurs, wealth, and be seen, I think, locally and maybe regionally and beyond as a community where entrepreneurship thrives. That can become a recruiting tool then uh, on how to bring uh, creative types and entrepreneurial types to Lawrence uh, and other businesses as well, even if they're later stage. So in thinking about that long-term sort of vision of where we want to head, um, I'll bring you down to a more sober reality of where we are now. These are kind of uh, the staff activities that we've identified that have to happen in order uh, for this work to be effective. A lot of this work is going on, and there are very few hats that are doing this work. Um, so in thinking about the future and how we want to sustain um, in order for us to uh, 
get the community to where we need it to be, it will require um, staffing, official full-time staffing. Um, and so that'll be something that we look forward to as we uh, move forward. Up until this point, it has been mostly done on volunteer labor, but we know that this work won't be sustained and can't be sustained into the future um, without a full committed sort of staff between our uh, respective organizations. Yeah. Uh, and of course, you know, thank you for for the city's support and and other you know entities are supporting this work. Um, we're pursuing larger grant opportunities because again, full time staff is going to be absolutely essential, or we're just going to get there really, really slow. And I think we want to get there a lot faster than decades. You know, we need to accelerate this uh, because this work is is really vital to economic development. So it's got to work. So we got to track performance. We need to know, all right, what are, we, what are we producing here? How many entrepreneurs are in the network? What's the diversity of the network? How many assistance hours you know, have been provided? Which programs have uh, you know, entrepreneurs participated in? And ultimately, what do the entrepreneurs themselves say? We need to start to document these case studies. Um, you know, case in point, you know, and they're, we're still early, right, in the in the rollout of these kinds of programs between Corn and Black Thirty. But we had a, our first annual pitch competition last spring, and one of the entrepreneurs who participated in that said, "I had this idea for a couple of years. I didn't know how to get started. This pitch competition came along. I was trained on how to pitch. I." We, we subsequently won some money through the pitch competition and then won some more money through other pitch competitions. And now we've built and launched an app and now we have office space at KUIP. You know, so we can take something from an idea on a napkin to a pitch and a plan to a product or a service and then ultimately start to commercialize that. Um, so we need to document those case studies and tell those stories because then those serve as models that other entrepreneurs who are aspiring can follow and see that I don't have to leave Lawrence and Douglas County. I can do that here. Thank you. Thanks. Yeah. Uh, thank you, Kyle and Devante. So that was a lot. Um, there's a lot of exciting, awesome work um, that we are happy and, and glad to participate in and collaborate on. Um, so if there's any questions that the commission has, there's a lot of information thrown out, um, but we are ha more than happy to answer anything. Questions? I have a couple. The, the Kaufman Fast Track program, is how is that different from the JUMP program that we fund? Yeah, thank you for that question. So um, through the JUMP program, that was done in a different um, learning management platform uh, that wasn't as accessible to persons with disabilities. So this uh, Kaufman Fast Track cohort will actually be done in the Canvas system, which is what KU also uses. Um, and so long-term goal is to be able to allow um, students that are interested in, in entrepreneurship as well to hop into our Canvas environment because it reflects what they have uh, on campus at KU. So fully accessible, reasonable accommodation, unreasonable accommodation, however you learn, it can be adapted. Okay. 
and then this, the different programs that we're doing with NLC, the CIE initiatives, those come with dollars. Have we secured the dollars for those? Yeah, so um, as part of the, the CIE program, um, each city, each initiative participation, so we're participating in three, each initiative has a $15,000 grant opportunity with that. Um, the grant uh, period opened February 1st, so that was last Friday. Um, city, the city is working on its application, and I believe Black 30 and, and Art Love Collective are working on theirs as well. That is a rolling submission period, um, so you submitted in, I think, about a, a week, week and a half is when we uh, hear back from those dollars. Mm -hmm. Does that come with a match requirement? Also, so no. But I also would like to note that that is seed funding. So that is not what it takes to run these entire programs. And NLC has been very transparent with us that $15,000 doesn't run your full fast track or asset mapping or anchor procurement. So there is no match, but identifying others that will invest in these programs. So the plan with core, uh, E3, identifying who else is going to step in and support so these can be run to the full capacity is essential. And then my, my last question is, with the work that's being done with the E3 and then with what was proposed tonight and then what we're doing with the CIE, how are you all ensuring that all of these systems are talking to each other to your point, so you're not duplicating, but yet if there's something over here that's feeding a data point over here that you're 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 tapped into that. Yeah, yeah. So um, luckily, everybody um, that was participating today um, talks to each other on a frequent basis. Um, with I know with NLC um, Commissioner, you were there and, and Mayor, um, how they talked about four opportunities. For part cities participating in multiple opportunities with NLC, that is in, in itself its own opportunity to either create a pipeline or interconnections. Um, I know as the, the work with Forward Cities kind of coalesces and they're looking for um, what they've, um, what Forward Cities identifies as like an ask or some kind of um, systemic barrier or something to identify that uh, system level change, um, we can identify whether that's uh, part of the resource mapping or the educational component. And then, um, you know, it may turn out that something that is a barrier or a hurdle we're already working on. Um, so as these progress, um, we will all be keeping a close eye. We're all, we're all partners, we're all collaborating. Um, so keeping a close eye on how we can continually help each other every step of the way. I would just echo that and add um, the E3 work as it relates to the listening project is really um, entrepreneur centered. So we really are um, uh, these these great programs that are growing and expanding throughout Douglas County are centered around you know organizations that are helping entrepreneurs. Um, we are really passionate about the voice of the entrepreneur themselves. So whatever stage they are in in their business, um, that they are getting the direct support that they need. So really advocating for people to um, go to their businesses, people to fund their programs, um, you know, people to, I mean, I'm, I'm an example of that, right? I run a nonprofit program, and, and some of the passion is how do we get nonprofit dollars, how do we get city grant dollars down to these grassroots programs that the entrepreneurs are putting off so, uh, so we can start to fill some of the gaps of service needs that are happening in our community. Um, so our listening project really does center around what are going to be the ask, 
that we bring back to the community that centers around how are we effectively and immediately uh, being able to enhance what the entrepreneurs are doing, in addition to connecting them with these great services that allow them to keep momentum moving forward. And then, sorry, I thought I had I, the last one, promise. This, and this might be Taylor or Kyle, you might guys be able to answer this. When I'm looking at your slide on your focus, and Devante, um, you have your, you serve, you said you serve all different types of entrepreneurs based on focus, sector, or stage. And I know some of the examples you gave lends to technical entrepreneurship. Have you identified or are you able to identify individuals who are in the social entrepreneur space? So that B Corp type of realm? Great question. We just had a kickoff event of this plan. I guess it's been a week and a half ago. And in the last, you know, in, in the three days, I guess, that, uh, you know, followed that event, we had 15 people register. And they're all over the map in terms of what kinds of businesses uh, they either currently run or they're proposing to run. So yes, the short answer is, yeah, we have all kinds. In, in the pitch competition last year, we had uh, a nonprofit, we had local businesses, we had tech entrepreneurs. Sometimes I have the bad habit of talking like a tech entrepreneur because I'm also a tech entrepreneur. Um, but, uh, and, and so my, my own experience sometimes, you know, uh, shines through a little too much, <laughs> but that's why I'm not, it's not, the team is not just me, right? Um, so we need to help all entrepreneurs, and we have, and we are, and, and again, every time we have an event, you know, an, another dozen, you know, aspiring or early stage entrepreneurs emerges, and you know, those are people we didn't know before, and now we can help them. Thank you. Uh, I, I was just, Curious on, uh, I guess, all of you, like current communication methods, because, uh, you know, looking at a couple of these events on here, I mean, it's, uh, they look awesome. So it's uh, just, uh, I know it's at a rudimentary stage, but, and I know that uh, it could be amplified, but I was just curious about it. Sure. So is the question sort of how are we navigating? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. How are you getting the word out currently? Yeah. So um, we do leverage between us, obviously, email. But for the entrepreneurs, um, social media has been one of the best places that we've connected with. Um, so identifying the platforms and, and using the algorithms to identify where our entrepreneurs are, how they are hearing about us, and then also identifying their... Um, I call it the on-ramp, you know, was the on-ramp core? Was it an E3 listening session? Was it Black 30? So asking those questions of how you became engaged um, with any of these initiatives that we are doing. Um, so that is a question that, that is asked at each entry point. Yeah, and I'm, I might just add that, you know, Kaufman has pointed to connectivity as a key ingredient of an ecosystem success. So essentially, are all those logos on the slide working together? Because from our, in our pitch competition, we had people referred to us by the chamber, the SBDC, KUIP, uh, you know, Haskell, Baker, KU, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, right? If we're all in it together, we're all gonna succeed a lot faster. And so there are different pockets of entrepreneurs, and that's why we all have to be tapping into all the different pockets of entrepreneurs and yeah advertising you know in a kind of omni-channel fashion but 
boots on the ground. It's what it's going to take, you know. Question, um, maybe for Kyle or Taylor, and maybe you don't want to talk about this after the game last night, but I saw K-State on the, on the uh, and I've heard some rumblings about K-State's involvement in this <laughs> and don't know where you're at on that. Um, well, one of our co-founders, uh, Marlon, uh, is with K-State. Would you like to speak to it? Um, okay. We're not going to talk about the game, though. <laughs> no promises. Uh, good evening. Marlon Bates, County Extension Director for K-State Research and Extension. Our office is on the fairgrounds. Uh, we, as K-State Research and Extension, have a presence in all 105 counties across the state of Kansas. Uh, I... Um, work at the one here in Douglas County. And uh, we began conversations about uh, what we were going to do sort of uh, at the onset of the pandemic regarding entrepreneurship. Uh, that conversation uh, led to the development of Douglas County Corps. So that's, that's the connection. Okay. Any further? Okay, thank you, sir. All right, I will move us on to public comment. Thank you. Hi, uh, I'm Dustin Stumbling Bear, and <clears throat> sorry, I'm getting a little over those. My wife and I, we've been trying to work on a business for some time, slowly getting it off the ground, and I've been hearing for a couple of years now all of this talk about we're going to support entrepreneurs of color throughout the community. I watch the occasional county commission meeting and see the conversations happen there and I've seen it here and it's a lot of smoke and mirrors right now and I'm, I'm okay with that because as was pointed out it takes money to get these uh, support for these projects for these personnel and they don't have that but I also want to have I have a real question going along with what uh, Commissioner Sellers said. If, if we're giving money to the Chamber of Commerce every year to support these projects, to support economic development, and these people are stepping up and saying we have these gaps that haven't been addressed for so many years, then why are we giving money to an organization that isn't addressing those gaps? And in the few months that I've interacted with Black 30, our business has moved along to we're actually going to incorporate later this week. And that's what advice from them and other veterans I've made in contact with. It has nothing to do with any other organization. I'm willing to look in and register with this core as personal. I dislike Kyle. I remember his antics from Old West Lawrence. That's being in this community for a long time. We recognize people and there's certain distaste for one another that come as, as it goes along. But we listen to other groups we work with and we say, do you vouch for that person? And as a person of color, we're going to listen to other people of color. Are they worth someone worth working with? And that's why I'm willing to look at and consider CORE because, yeah, once you burn that bridge with us, we move on. It's just how it is. Might make my life a little harder, but at least I know who I can trust and can't trust. And that's how I look at life, and that's how I approach it as a person of color who's in my mid-40s, who's been burned by tons of white people over my lifetime. And that's how I approach it. That's how I look at it. And so I asked that one question. I wanted to point out that with Black 30, we've moved along to my projects we were going to get done this year. 
you're going to see them out there. And it's because of my interaction with Black 30 and the space they have made where I can connect with other authors, other illustrators, other creatives of color, and we can feel safe, we can have our conversation, we can talk about these things there and have those business meetings where we're comfortable. We know we're looking out for each other. That's just some of the things I want to share with you. Thank you. Hello, um, my name is Chantel White. I am an entrepreneur here in Douglas County. I have two businesses actually, and I just launched some in the fall and in the winter of 2023. Um, Black 30 has given me and other black entrepreneurs resources and educational opportunities to become a better entrepreneur and to be successful and grow. Um, they advocate for us, and they pour into us. Um, they provided many networking and vendor events for entrepreneurs to interact with the community and to get our business names, products, and service out there. We are never charged a fee for these events. Um, and we are never, or sorry, they even introduced myself and several other of the entrepreneurs to the Small Business Development Center. Many of the clients that I have and the growth I've had in Lawrence is because of my association with Black 30. And I would like to see those that created Black 30 um, receive consistent support so our community will be thought of in, in, a going, in an ongoing way for years to come. Thank you. Any uh, further public comment here in the room? All right, I'm not seeing any. Um, Sherry uh, on Zoom. Stephen Watts. Hi, thank you. What Mr. Stumbling Bear just presented has a great deal of import and that is the reality that where is the Chamber of Commerce with respect to these these fledgling, and I use that word correctly, fledgling entrepreneurs? Are they part of Leadership Lawrence? Are they being asked to join that organization which centers around controlling economic development in our community? That's just a question. The next aspect is, let the marketplace dictate. Isn't that what capitalism is all about? Bluntly, I do not like personally to be pitched anything. The product needs to sell itself. Exposure to the product is what I believe these entrepreneurs think seek and it needs to happen but again pitching i find that word so offensive if people are not able to understand what they want to buy we don't need to be poking them and saying you need to buy this so at any rate, thank you for having these programs, and yet at the same time, we must be careful that in 
Well, five years time, where will these fledgling entrepreneurs be? Will they be coming to our town and asking for money to pay the rent? Or will they have a successful business? It's in your hands. Thank you. That's all the comments, Mayor. All right, thanks, Sherry. All right, uh, bringing it back to us. Any uh, further discussion or comments? Well, sir, I really appreciated the update. It's great. Um, I guess I'll jump in as well. Uh, yeah, uh, I think one of the words that was mentioned is connectivity. I was really glad to see that. Um, it's because, uh, you know, in my ideal, having that ecosystem where folks can enter and figure out what space they want to go ahead and navigate and at what stage they're at is the end goal <laughs> um, because uh, that, that'll just help us thrive anymore. And I'm, I'm overjoyed and uh, continually impressed with all the hard work that everybody who has presented has been putting into this. So I'm... Um, as said before, I was a part of the group that went to Atlanta to go ahead and um, check out the CIE portion of it, but I will be keeping my eyes on it, continuing, and uh, hopefully with uh, great returns as well. I'd just say quickly, uh, appreciate all the work, appreciate the um, efforts, look forward to continuing to support it, and... Um, I love Nicole's job title of Chief Doing Officer. We're going to have to use that somewhere within the city, a Chief Doing Officer, because um, that's what this is all about, getting it done. So appreciate that. All right. Uh, if there are no other um, comments, uh, thank you all for presenting. And, uh, yeah, like I'm looking forward to it. And I'll go ahead, and that will end our work session. Um, I think, okay. yes, uh, a break is in probably in order, a uh, 10 minute break, be back at it 7.37. All right. I don't know. I just think. Okay. All right, looks like we're all locked in. All right. Everybody's ready. I'd like to go ahead and resume the meeting. Um, up is Section H, regular agenda items. Number one, consider a comprehensive plan amendment for CPA-23-00186 to Plan 2040, Chapter 8B, Specific Land Use Plans, Revised Southern Development Plan. Adopt on first reading, Joint City Ordinance Number 10020-County Resolution to be named, submitted by Land Plan Engineering. Good evening, Commissioners, Sandy Day, Planning Office. The presentation that I will give tonight is also in your packet. I'm only going to cover about half of what is in the packet because it was a joint presentation for the Planning Commission that included also the preliminary plat. The only item before you this evening is the comprehensive plan component of this project. It was forwarded to you from the Planning Commission's November meeting by a vote of five to four. 
This is just a quick summary of the various applications we are working through. The comprehensive plan amendment is before you this evening and will also be going to the county commission tomorrow night. There are a number of zonings that actually had been deferred. Um, the planning commission has since considered those and they will be coming forward to you at a future meeting. And then the preliminary plat, which was considered by the planning commission and approved subject to a number of conditions. Outside of that work is also the floodplain development permit and a CLOMER um, related to the um, CLOMER stands for conditional letter of map revision and that is also a process that would be subject to allow this property to develop. In your packet is included the concept plan of the project and I put this up for you so that you can understand kind of the concept and the range of uses that are being proposed with this project that are also reflected in the comprehensive plan amendment that's being considered. It includes detached residential lots, mixed uses, open space. Um, the applicant identified some things as entertainment, commercial pad sites, hotel pad sites, fuel charging stations, all of that comes into an, an umbrella of either commercial or mixed use categories under the zoning component of that. This slide highlights the boundary of the revised Southern Development Plan and the red box highlights the subject property within the boundary of that plan area. So the plan boundary generally grabs that area south of 31st Street down to the Wakarusa River. And if you'll notice on the comprehensive plan amendment uh, land use, pretty much everything east of Michigan Street extended to, to the south there um, is occupied by the Baker Wetlands. So that's an established land use, open space within the community. And this would be at the boundary of that at Michigan Street. There are properties that are potentially developable um, to the west of um, Highway 59 or Iowa Street extended. That would be considered as part of a larger review of the um, revised Southern Development Plan that would be a future application. This request focuses just on this roughly 180-ish acres um, that is right there at the intersection of K-10 Highway or South Lawrence Trafficway and Highway 59. A couple of the existing conditions, um, again, because this presentation was done for also the preliminary plat and the zonings, um, there is floodplain on this property, and that is related to that floodplain development permit and the CLOMER application. Uh, much of the property is currently in agricultural um, uses. And another significant component of this project is the intersection of K-10 Highway. And one of the exciting things about this project is we now know, have more information about what that interchange is going to look like than we have in any previous application um, for this project. What you can see on the bottom image is the concept where the applicant would be working with KDOT to acquire that ground. Um, and then that would shift existing 35th Street further to the south, creating land area that could be developed on either side of that street, and that would be coordinated with um, work by KDOT and the applicant. 
This slide highlights where this project is located in relationship to commercial development that is generally um, 23rd Street, South Iowa. Um, because of the way our zoning cone is structured, there are specific zoning districts that the applicant is considering. Their intent really is to do a mixed use kind of development um, and we'll be talking with you more about that in the future. There is also um, some dedicated open space that would be retained in the project that would be integral to both stormwater management, to protection and preservation of portions of the existing floodplain, but also with an intention or an intentionality to be incorporated into the development concept. The revised Southern Development Plan was originally approved back in the early 90s as part of the Southern Development Plan. So there's always been this expectation of development for this property. And this certainly predated any design for what K-10 Highway is today and what it will be becoming in the relatively near future. Um, the plan was updated and then became known as the revised Southern Development Plan in 2007, and that is with the more refined alignment of what we know today as the South Lawrence Traffic Way. Um, in the plan, you see um, there's act this is just one of the land use plans. Um, the other example shows uh, this area as a um, uh, new urbanist type of design options. So if a property owner or developer had come forward with the SMART code, um, they, they would be looking at uh, a different type of mixed use project through that particular zoning ordinance. So this is just um, highlighting what that looked like in 2007 when that was adopted. And then there was another revision um, in 2013, and that had to do more with the Menards project um, up in this area, I'm sorry, up in this area of the plan boundary. Um, one of the highlights of this project, uh, especially as we talk about it um, along this um, southern side of K-10 is this land use designation of auto-related commercial uses, and we discussed that in the staff report. Auto-related auto uses were really thought to um, be that place where you know, car dealerships would be located, uh, very um, specific auto-related kinds of uses. Um, that is not a land use category we see in Plan 2040. So this work was actually based on uh, Horizon 2020. Um, so there are some n natural inconsistencies between plan language in this document and the adopted um, Plan 2040. So that is yet another reason to look at updating some of this information and language. Um, because we have a very specific project, um, we are able to incorporate that entirety of that uh, area within that boundary of the plan, rather than looking at it piecemeal, which was kind of an example of what the Menards project was. It was a very isolated piece of land that we looked at. Um, so what this image shows you is a graphic depiction of what the revised comprehensive plan amendment is, and that is really showing that we have um, 
this area is kind of colored in a way that is intended to highlight a, a mixed-use district or a mix of uses, um, and then more traditional commercial along the highway intersection. The applicant's project also includes another small area of commercial um, located along the highway and then buffered with that um, open space that would be incorporated into a design concept of the project. The reason that we identified this larger area as mixed use is because of that residential component. Um, previously, we have not really seen a lot of residential design coming forward it, for this area. Um, if you looked at some of the earlier plans, it was kind of multifamily and um, this very auto-centric kind of land use, and that was, that was kind of it. Whereas this proposal is really looking to marry and integrate land uses um, more consistent with what we see in planning documents and plan development trends, um, not only locally, but regionally and nationally. Just for context, um, this is the subject property, um, and you can see how it compares in terms of uh, a neighborhood building block that we are looking at within the comprehensive plan components. These are some of the other surrounding um, neighborhoods that you see in the community. We see neighborhoods range um, anywhere from um, 326 acres um, down to seven and a half acres. So um, this is a, a very nice unit that we're able to look at holistically, and the, and the comprehensive plan amendment also helps us do that. These are the findings that are in the staff report that we evaluate the comprehensive plan amendment based on, um, how the amendment addresses the results from changed circumstances, um, certainly understanding, having a better understanding of the highway intersection as well as changes in land uses and uh, goals expressed in uh, Plan 2040, how the amendment advances clear public purposes, and those we talk about um, in terms of the discussion that we've had ongoing with being able to build in more residential choices and opportunities in the community, and this project would allow for that to happen. Um, that the project is consistent with long-range goals and policies of the plan. Um, we've spoke, we've focused really pretty narrowly on this 180-ish acres that we're talking about within this project. Um, there, there will be an opportunity in the future to, to open up the whole plan and um, update all of those policies um, that have those those links and references to Plan 20. Uh, I'm sorry, Horizon 2020, and bring them current to Plan 2040. Um, not going to go through all of these unless you have some specific questions. That's really um, the summary of staff's recommendation for approval. Planning Commission, as I mentioned, sent this to you on a vote of five to four um, with a recommendation for approval. And I'm happy to answer any questions that you may have. I think there are um, staff members online if you have other specific questions um, that I can't answer. Okay. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, with this, I'll open it up to questions. Let's uh, get us started off.
Um, I guess I I just had a uh, you know a, a question, um, and I'm not sure who on staff this would be for, um, but uh, or actually, uh, um, you know what? Yeah, I'm thinking about it. Um, so. This is still early in the process, and this still has to go through like state and federal permitting process. Is that correct? Sandy Day planning for the comprehensive plan amendment. The, the specific item that's before you, um, no, it does not require any state or federal permitting. The changes to the floodplain, specifically the the floodplain development permit, is a local application that is reviewed um, by our floodplain manager, and then the Clomer, the the amendments to the regulatory floodplain ultimately a letter of map revision through that does have to have um, federal approval. So that that is a longer process. Um, the applicant has is working with the city and working on moving that application forward. Okay. Well, if there are no other further questions, um, I'll go ahead and move us on to uh, believe uh, Public comments. Oh, I'm sorry. Well, I'm sorry. Uh, yeah, I, the developer. I'm sorry. That would you want to speak to this project? I apologize for that. I got put on autopilot. <laughs> Mayor, commissioners, Phil Struble, Land Plan Engineering. I've just got a, a couple of things I want to point out uh, about this project, and then I'll just open it up for questions from you for me. Um, and uh, the one uh, prevailing uh, question out there for uh, us, and it has been throughout the life of this project, has been the floodplain. <clears throat> and, um, you know, we went into this project very aware of, of the nature of the floodplain, the issues with the floodplain, and have spent a huge amount of time and energy regarding this, this project on the floodplain, and it's been designed around the floodplain. We have a, a wetlands consultant has been part of our, our project team. We have a floodplain consultant. Um, out of Kansas City who is part of our team and has provided all the computer modeling. A couple of things I want to note about the floodplain uh, that are slight misconceptions about the floodplain. One of them is uh, we hear phrases such as we should not develop in the floodplain and, and I wholeheartedly agree with that. But I do want to point out that the definition of the floodplain is two parts. One, there is the floodway, and the second part is the floodway fringe. And if you go into the definition of the floodway or the floodplain fringe, the floodplain fringe is that area of the floodplain that can be developed without raising the floodway waters in the floodway more than one foot. So let me say that again. The floodplain is divided in the part of the floodplain that can be developed and the part of the floodplain that cannot be developed. And all of our work uh, is in the area that can be developed. And of that area in the floodplain that we could develop, we're not developing all of it. We're leaving quite a bit of it open. We're saving the trees. We're saving the wetlands. We've got open spaces that are included in there that are part of the floodplain fringe that we are not 
touching. And so, so technically, we're only developing about half of the area in the floodplain fringe that, by definition, is the area in the floodplain that we can develop. And the floodway is the area that we have to and we will completely stay out of. Furthermore, an additional protection that I want to just expound on a little bit <clears throat> is the, the city's requirements for us to develop in the floodplain hold us to a threshold that the water in the floodway, not the one foot as identified by, the, by FEMA, will rise no more than 0 .00 feet. 0 .00 feet is how much the city of Lawrence's restrictions on our development in the floodplain, we have to demonstrate that. FEMA, because it has a one foot restriction in there, you know, so generally uh, that uh, equates to something between a half a foot and one foot. It can't be more than that. So we generally use the rule of thumb that in based on FEMA we can increase the water surface elevation in the floodway by half a foot. That's just kind of a rule of thumb. In Lawrence it is 0, .00 feet. If there ever was an instance where we have an overboard and excessive amount of self-built-in protection for our community, and I'm not, I'm not bad-mouthing this at all, because we were able to come up with a way that we met the 0, .00 feet requirement, um, this is it. And so what is that, a hundredfold? times protection that we have in our community's regulations for our floodplain protection. Now, our, our floodplain consultant has developed the model that FEMA uses to review and approve our application for a sea loamer. And that model is called a HECRAS model. And that has been submitted to the city, and I just saw an email, uh, I believe it was yesterday, um, could have even been this morning, from Kyle Gunterwitz, where he has finished his review of that and was forwarding on to the planning office his review, which he agrees with our findings that we meet the .00 feet as identified in that study. So that is, that is done through the engineering part, it's back in the planning office, Hopefully they'll see fit to allow us to submit that sea loamer application in the very near future. Um, <clears throat> so the, the second um, comment I want to make about our application is the uses. Now, clearly, the old uses were, were 2007. A lot of things have changed since 2007. Uh, Auto-related uh, ceased to become something that was interested out there. Back then, there was an actual application where some people thought they might be moving an auto plaza out there. That didn't happen. Uh, so that plan was built around a specific use. It wasn't built around a community study of what was going to happen here. This application is built around a specific use, um, and we were able to, and we worked that with staff throughout this whole process for, gosh, probably nine months now, uh, just to come up with refining those uses and defining that. Now, when we bring back our zoning application, 
our zoning application is in seven different pieces, and, and that seems a little bit like overkill. But one of the things that we wanted to incorporate in our zoning application and in this comprehensive plan is the assurance of what we we're going to do. I mean, this is built around an, an, an entertainment district concept. It's going to be uses that we are proposing for this area that uh, are not going to compete with downtown or, or are not going to compete with other parts of Lawrence. <clears throat> and so we're trying to build this and build in protections to where we can't come back in and say, oh, I'm sorry, we're going to put in a big box because we can't do that given the nature of how we've structured all these rezoning applications. And so that's why when you see the zoning, and this one even has the different colors in it already, we wanted to build in those protections for that. I think that's all the, the highlights I wanted to hit. Sandy and the staff, the planning office has just been just great to work with. We really appreciate their efforts. Uh, and I just uh, urge your approval of this uh, comprehensive plan amendment. And with that, I'd stand for any questions that you might have. Thanks, Phil. Sorry about mm -hmm. that earlier. Yeah. Um, any questions? For I have Phil? a question. So how, how, what's the planned amount of soil that you're going to add? How many feet are you going to add in order to get out of that floodplain? Uh, probably it ranges from zero to, I believe, the, the highest area that we have to put in is five foot of fill. And the five foot of fill is driven by the nature of we have that creek that crosses from Walkaway Farms, which is our neighbor to the east, and that we have to put in stormwater pipes large enough to make sure we can get the floodwater flows through that. So we've got to build that road up enough to where we can get that water underneath that. And that's really what drives that depth of fill. Okay, thanks. Mm -hmm. um, Thank I, I had a, an additional mm -hmm. question regarding that. So that's the height, but what area, what, like how, how large is that area of fill going to be? Um, I, I, I would just be guessing, but probably five foot of fill could probably be as much as five or six acres right in there. Okay. All right. Okay. Any further questions for Phil? Okay. All right. Thank you. Thank you. Um, Sherry, I, I did have a question or um, on this as well. Is did we need to note any sort of ex parte or anything like that? I didn't see any. I don't believe so. Okay. No. Okay. Just making sure. Um, okay. I will go ahead and open this up to public comment now. Hi, good evening. Uh, my name is Samantha Rogwitz and I'm a Lawrence resident. Um, I'm here to ask you to leave the comprehensive plan as it is with the floodplain protected as open space. This issue was carefully considered by the planning commissioners past and parties who developed plan 2040. And while this development may be tempting, let us not abandon common sense. Floodplain serves a purpose. And while it may be more difficult to put a dollar sign on it, the land has value. We have to protect it so it can protect us. 
I urge you to carefully consider the points made by John Haas in his letter to you that's in the agenda packet about the flaws in the hydraulic and hydrologic study. He pointed out that according to Article 12 in the Land Development Code, this study must include what flood levels would look like if the rest of the valley was developed. But it, this study does not do that. It only looks at this project in isolation. And that approach is wise because if we here today are going to discount the value of floodplain and say that a new building site is more important, then what do we expect will happen to the rest of the Wakarusa Valley in the future? We cannot just consider this in isolation. It is likely to lead to more buildings on more areas of floodplain. More building has already happened upriver and downriver, and the more impervious surfaces that are added, the higher the flood waters will go. We are eating away at the floodplain, and sooner or later we will pay the price. Delineating between floodway and floodplain is just semantics. The developer states that he can't develop in the floodway, but he can develop in the floodplain, but there's a difference between can and should. All professional organizations who deal with this issue are unanimous about not only preserving floodway, but floodplain as a core component of our ability to live with a changing climate and increasing floodwaters. On a separate point, moving the space from open space to built space will impact the Baker wetlands. The city has not conducted an environmental study on the effect of this development on our precious and sacred Baker wetlands. And while the developers may be making good faith efforts to build pollution mitigation into their plan, we just do not have the data to know for sure if it will be enough. The Baker wetlands are a priceless treasure and a cultural linchpin of our community, and we should prioritize their care even if we are not technically required to do so. Many of you have heard of the, the uh, a cognitive bias called the sunken cost fallacy. It's a phenomenon that happens to us all. We continue pouring time, money, and effort into situations when it's irrational to do so, but it's so difficult to walk away because we don't want to accept we've wasted so much resources on the project, and it can lead to terrible decisions. I encourage you to just realize that building on the floodplain is a bad idea, and we have to stop wasting resources on this unwise venture. Thank you. Good evening, Mayor and Commissioners and staff. My name is Bonnie Lowe. I'm the President and CEO of the Lawrence Chamber. Thank you for the opportunity to address you tonight, and especially thank you for serving. So when the South Lawrence Traffic Way was first discussed years ago, one of the things that was touted was economic development, and we're finally here. My hope is that with this project, economic development and housing on the other side of the SLT, it's uh, finally time to do that. So I am in here in favor of the project. I know there are others here also that may not be speaking tonight, but there's been quite a lot of conversation um, about, uh, about this development. So this area, I just want to make a few points. This area was annexed a year ago and is part of the approved plan. And I thought Sandy did a wonderful job outlining the benefits and uh, very factual information about the project and Phil also about the floodplain, which I understand has been a concern, but I feel personally that those items have been addressed. We desperately need housing in our community. In addition to the housing units that are part of this development, it's, I would anticipate that other houses in our community will open up and hopefully will feed some of our neighborhood schools, which is something that we all care about. 
the amenities of this development will be a regional draw to our community. There will be additional dollars that will come to town, not only for the development and the amenities that this development will bring, but throughout our community and county. The developer has been very transparent and collaborative, listening to the needs of our community. So thank you for your investment in Lawrence. We appreciate that, and I hope that uh, you will go ahead and uh, follow the planning staff and planning commissioners who have recommended approval for this project. Thank you for your time. My name is Margaret Kramar, and I stand in opposition to this project. First of all, this development would not add more affordable housing to Lawrence. In a previous presentation, the cheapest housing unit was listed at $350,000. Let's do the math. The average teacher salary in Lawrence is $55,000 per year before taxes, which means the individual is taking home about $4,000 a month. A 30-year mortgage at 6% interest on a $350,000 house is about $2,000 a month. It is unwise to spend half of one's income on housing, and most people do not have several million tucked away somewhere in order to buy housing outright. Secondly, the proposed development area will flood. <clears throat> we attended Wetlands Day at the Baker Wetlands this past Saturday, and a naturalist stated that flooding was inevitable. Also, how can we really think that moving some dirt around by grading in a floodplain is more powerful than the rains, which are increasing in velocity and strength due to global warming? When these properties are underwater, who will pick up the tab? The insurance company? The home or business owner? The developer? Finally, this development is immediately adjacent to the bigger wetlands. There is considerable habitat for humans in the Lawrence vicinity, but for bald eagles, trumpeter swans, and all other riparian plant and animal life, not so much. I can remember the discussions surrounding the South Lawrence Traffic Way and the promises that Native American land would not be compromised. But along with all the other promises made to Native Americans, this promise has been renegotiated, infringed upon, chipped away, and violated. I would invite anyone who favors this project to walk through the Baker Wetlands in order to observe the magnificence that is out there and to hopefully discover just one thing that is more important than money. Thank you. Hi, Mayor and Commissioners. Thank you for your service. I'm Russ Johnson, and I'm making some remarks kind of in two capacities. First, as uh, one of the leaders of a large employer in our community with 2,000 people and full-time and part-time and staff that runs the whole continuum from entry level to subspecialty surgical medical folks and virtually 
every one of those positions are people who can work somewhere else. And where place to live and work is vitally important and increasingly challenging. Second, in my role as chamber chair, um, the great news about our community is it's a fantastic place to be. And that is going to become more prevalent and more evident in the years ahead. And that is going to lead to these kinds of struggles. Because people are going to want to be here. They're going to want to move here. Um, and it's an engaging and it's a fantastic place to be. And it presents this challenge for you all about how do we make these decisions in a thoughtful and measured and balanced way because make these decisions we will have to do. And so it, at least from my lay understanding of this, it feels like this is a thoughtful approach. Um, it is seeking to balance what is a compelling need around housing and homes in our community. It seeks to preserve some of the beautiful space that the speakers have remarked on. It adds economic vitality, which isn't the singular purpose. I think earlier the planning staff said, you know, does it serve a public purpose? And one of those public purposes is tax revenue and economic vitality and a great place to live and amenities that serve our community. These are going to be difficult decisions. But it seems to me that this is a balanced approach. I hope you'll support it. Thank you. Hello, my name is Gary Pratt. I'm a Douglas County resident, uh, local banker, community uh, uh, involved citizen. Uh, I also serve on the advisory board over at Salvation Army. Uh, in multiple capacities, I see the, the need for housing. I see a need for um, people who are not only seeking affordable housing, but understand that the way that you get affordable housing is you build more houses than the, uh, enough houses that people uh, that want to live here can can buy. When someone moves out of a, uh, another uh, house, it makes it possible for that person to move into their uh, their, pre their their earlier home. That's your affordable housing. Your affordable housing is housing stock that has already been built. The stuff that you build today is market rate. Uh, they've tried to address this with the with the um, uh, transparency with the process and to help the people that um, uh, uh, or, uh, built the the plan to to provide housing of very different uh, uh, price points and sizes and address uh, housing that is is going to be needed for uh, various people. Um, there's also the, uh, the the component on the commercial side. I think it's it's been responsive to what the city has given them as information. I think they've done a great job on on trying to mitigate the the issues with uh, concerns about floodplain. Uh, I, for one, love to see the town grow. One of the things that I hear about all the time is that there is not only an issue with with uh, housing, but there's also an issue issue with workforce. There's an issue with declining uh, enrollment. A town needs to grow in order to continue to, to thrive, and so this is a, a right at our in, in our grasp to be able to make that possible. I think it's done in a measured way, and I think it's done in a way that uh, addresses the concerns of the city, the community, and um, and I for one support it.
Hello. I'm Melinda Ball on behalf of uh, scientist Dr. Don Huggins of the Kansas Biological Survey, per his approval. Dear, com dear commissioners, build out in the, flood the Wakarusa floodplain should be looked upon as a high-risk venture for all concerned, regardless of what current, current decision-making criteria are met and what local experts may advise. There are diverse, well-documented reasons why building on any floodplain should be avoided whenever possible. Individual but cumulative interrelated buildouts collectively increase the impervious surfaces, surface areas that would normally help mitigate increased, often fla flashy stormwater runoff. These differences affect not only the converted floodplain area, but also areas downstream of the projects. Nearly all empirical information and floodplain models used today are based on long-term historical climatic conditions. The USGS recognized that the use of this historic data now produce increasingly inaccurate models under, cl under climate change. Moreover, the interactions between building on floodplains and climate change disproportionately impact poor and non-white communities. Despite early deniers and often politically motivated disinformation regarding the reality of climate change, we are now all experiencing its, its significant effects. As a scientist with nearly 60 years of working on rivers, the most troubling to me is the increased frequency and severity of extreme events. Both flood and drought events have become more frequent. Rather than canceling each other out, these extremes exacerbate erosion in, nat in natural systems and strain infrastructure. Beyond housing itself, the infrastructure for these areas will significantly challenge, challenged by flood and drought events will have little precedent within our lifetimes or even those of our grandparents. And one, once conver, uh, conversion projects are approved, they cannot be unbuilt. They will only open for greater floodplain development. The US Army of Corps Engineers is now attempting to assess if current reservoirs will be able to accommodate larger and more frequent flood events, yet reserve enough water to, to accommodate intervening drought periods. Nearly all of the reservoirs were built in the 1960s and 70s and were based on historic climate information that are much less applicable to current and future conditions. Does Clinton Reservoir have the current capacity and operational flexibility to prevent downstream flooding in the new age of climate change? That is a question for the USAACE and must be addressed before any further encroachment in the Wakarusa floodplain is approved. The state of Kansas is also worried about the ability of our large reservoirs to continue to provide the many social services such as water supply, flood protection, and water quality support we have come to depend on. Prevention of downstream flood events is not a current, is not a current guarantee, much less a future guarantee. Dr. Don Huggins, Kansas Sorry. Biological Survey. Thank you. Oh. Are you okay? Thanks. Um, hi, uh, I'm Samantha Peterson. I'm a Lawrence resident. Um, so I moved to Lawrence as a kid in the 90s. I actually grew up in the Prairie Meadows neighborhood over 31st um, and Lawrence Avenue. So I'm very familiar with this area. Um, in the time that I've lived here, I've watched the city just expand massively. Um, and I think with the land that we have left, it's really important for us to think really carefully about how we use it. Um, so I guess part of this problem, I think the area down in the south part of Lawrence has a ton of commercial development already. Like honestly, unless you're gonna bring me back the roller rink from when I was a little kid, like we kinda have this covered. <laughs> um, on top of that, while we are of course always in need of affordable housing, 
I don't think we're in need of incredibly expensive housing that honestly is likely to experience a catastrophic flood at some point. That's not really good for anybody. And I know they say they've handled the floodplain situation, but I think it's very arrogant to think that they really can solve that problem with what they've proposed. And you know, the developer doesn't really have to stay here and care about the community in the long term. Um, that's our job. And um, in the spirit of that, I ask that you please uh, vote no to this amendment. Thank you. Okay. Um, any additional public comment here in the room? Not seeing any. Um, okay. Uh, Sherry on Zoom. Rob Richardson. Thank you, Mr. Mayor, members of the commission. My name is Rob Richardson. I work with the Lawrence and Douglas County Economic Development Council, and I'm here to speak in favor of this project this evening and to tell you the sky is not falling. We have been hearing these environmental concerns for a long time, and quite frankly, they aren't coming true. The polar ice caps have grown and shrunk and grown and shrunk many times over the last 20 years. Do we need to be concerned about it? Yes. But your ordinance also requires them to build above that level so that if there is a change in the future, the new development isn't gonna flood and everything will be okay. When Phil said that your ordinance requires 0, 0.0 feet of elevation rise in the floodway, that's really a staff interpretation. Your ordinance leaves that open. And since 2006, the staff has interpreted it to be 0, 0.00. I would encourage you to direct them to bring an amendment forward immediately that addresses that so that, that can be decided in an open public debate, not by a staff member from 2006. I would also like to say that when someone says all professional organizations agree that the floodplain should not be developed, that's a very broad statement. And I would say that there are a lot of organizations that give you guidance that we need to protect floodplains, and that's true. But if this, are, if this area is to be developed, it won't be a floodplain when it is. There are local, state, and national ways to remove areas of floodplain, and they're all completely legal, and they don't do any damage to anyone. I am a wilderness guy. One of my vacations every year is to go backpacking or canoeing in the wilderness. I love natural areas. But in urban areas, we don't have a lot of natural area left. They're all contrived. I've been in hearings in this before this body talking about a natural creek. It's not natural the way it was before we came here. It is polluted. It has been redirected by our development in the past. And I think you need to be very careful when you say, how do we, what do we want to maintain that's natural? We protect the flood, the new waters that go into our streams by from new developments with stormwater best management practices that are better than they've ever been. We do more stormwater retention and detention than we've ever done to protect these areas. We are very well protected. Our natural areas, if you call them that, the things that look natural, that might have been there for 10 or 20 or 30 years or 50 years are being protected. And I would encourage you to look at, you know, if you build 20 houses a month in Lawrence, that equates to another $70 million in construction industry jobs for Lawrence every year. Please vote in favor of this. 
Patrick Schmitz. Good Excuse me. Uh, good evening, uh, Mayor and Commissioners. Thank you for the opportunity to stand here today and and uh, provide my support for this uh, the new Boston Crossing application. In the packet, you will find a letter that I wrote to the Planning Commission back in November, and I'm not going to go through that again um, because you're all capable of reading. Uh, but I will highlight um, a, a specific area of that, and one of the earlier uh, uh, commenters provided the same thing. Uh, no, as you know, uh, being the CEO Bert Nash, uh, we're very much uh, in favor of affordable housing. We work on this space day in and day out. Our struggle is housing for the people that work for us. Like uh, Russ Johnson, we employ folks that are entry level all the way up to specialty medical care. Uh, and it's a number of our team members who earn a reasonably good living or even a very good living, uh, but struggle to buy housing because there is not enough uh, housing stock. And so a noteworthy aspect of this project is to create that potential ripple effect on the local housing market, this new purpose purpose-built housing, uh, when it becomes available at New Crossing, uh, allows for individuals who are currently maybe in their first home, their starter home or their second home, to then move into a different home, opening up uh, their existing home uh, for uh, somebody who might want to be entering the home ownership world. So I strongly support uh, this application and encourage you to uh, consider supporting it as well. Thank you. That's all the comment. Oh, Don Hawkins. Hi, um, I have a let. I submitted a letter. I'm just going to add a, a few more comments. Um, so, but I hope you will review all of the the letters that have been submitted to you already on this. My name is Don Hawkins. I'm a rural Douglas County resident and property owner. Uh, in the city of Lawrence. I strongly oppose the location of this proposed development that's in a floodplain right next to our precious Haskell Baker wetlands and the Wakarusa River. The property owner that puts this question to you today is an out-of-town company with global holdings interested in profits, not our community. They're asking you to reject the regulatory guidance that the citizens of Lawrence, city staff, previous boards and commissions and experts worked so hard to put into place. They're asking you to do this before they have permission from FEMA to change the topography of this area without an environmental impact study and without community discussion surrounding this enormous proposed change to our city. As some of you know, this area is so beloved by the community that it took decades for the developed de developer pushed South Lawrence traffic way to come into existence and we sat with a ramp to nowhere for years before the SLT was ultimately pushed through. We are already experiencing changes here from flooding. In 2019, Clinton Lake broke its record for the highest water level. We had to hold that water in the lake and not release it during the summer that summer because of the downstream flooding of the Kansas River and surrounding areas, which the Wakarusa uh, uh to. And you can still see the high water line and the trees all around the lake. 
Uh, you can even see the invasive zebra mussels several feet up a, a tree from from that. Is I mean, really, these floods really do change uh, things faster than than we can keep up. Um, any changes to the comprehensive plan must take this into account. It's my understanding that the comprehensive plan is scheduled to be reviewed and revised this year. I read in someone else's letter, um, we should allow this process to happen and not make uh, a quick decision uh, based on a developer's wants and needs. Thank you. That's all the comments, Mayor. Thank you, Sherry. Um, I'm sorry, I was outside. May I speak? Sure. I'll, I'll, I, I appreciate it. I apologize. Uh, I will be brief because actually what has been said from the first uh, woman who spoke to uh, Ms. Kumar and others, I am in opposition. I'm representing Lettuce Lawrence Ecology Teams United Sustainability. We're an interfaith group. And sometimes people ask, what in the world is an interfaith group? Why are you making any kind of testimony on this kind of thing? Well, there are sacred things in life. And we understand what means to be sacred is that you respect. Water and land are two primary points. This project says that it serves the public good. Who is the public? Part of that public is the earth and the water. Now I also serve on the climate change, uh, Douglas County Climate Change Task Force, and I don't speak for them, but I can say we are aware of the incredible risk we are taking looking to the future in terms of uh, addressing the issues of floodplain. The infrastructure that it will take to control that and to mediate it is huge. But more importantly, we're asking for a thoughtful decision on this, considering respect for a sacred portion of where we live. And not to see it as another resource in order to increase, possibly, at the cost of the floodplain destruction for all that's there in the rich riparian areas of Wakarusa River. So thank you for considering this and to be thoughtful about it and to understand that the Planning Commission also struggled with this with a five to four decision. And I think it'll probably be the same case for all of us. Thank you again for your time. Hello, good evening, Mayor Littlejohn and commissioners. My name is Michael Allman. I would say that tonight's proposal is procedurally inadequate and inequitable and also has damaging ecological impacts. In the um, planning staff in their planning division work plan has currently scheduled a revision of the Southern uh, Development Plan this year in 2024, already scheduled. Um, by putting on tonight's uh, proposal, planning staff has short-circuited that update process. Uh, Mr. Phil Bundy, the developer, he can afford to wait while there's a thorough comprehensive plan amendment that is properly publicized and vetted. In November of 2023, 
Planning Commission recommended approval of this in a meeting when the public was greatly uninformed. Most people didn't even know there was a plan. Uh, the amendment simply appeared on the Planning Commission agenda five days before the meeting. There was no formal process announced, no steering committee, no web page created with the current plan or the scope of work to revise it, nothing like that. If you grant the comprehensive plan amendment, you are enabling the developer to uh, fill an additional 71 acres with fill and build. The 71 acres of fill and build would exacerbate flooding by eliminating about 22 million acre feet of flood storage. By eliminating that flood storage, that water will have to go somewhere else. It's common sense, but also understood by FEMA. Also, um, this, this comprehensive plan amendment, if approved, would drive an urban wedge into the center of the Wakarusa River corridor. Most concerning the aspect is that FEMA data is out of date. Local maps are based on nearly 10-year-old data, and FEMA is also challenged greatly by climate-driven rapid changes in storm patterns and intensities. I just want to point out the letter that came from John Haas, former planning commissioner. It's in your packet, and hopefully you read it. The proposed amendment before the commission fails due to noncompliance with Article 12 of the Development Code. The hydrologic and hydraulic study in support, support of the amendment is defective. Time. The study shall Michael, assume it's time. full development of the list. watershed. Thank you. Which it didn't. Thank you. Phil, is there anything as the developer you'd want to say to uh, any of the public comment? I, thank you for the opportunity, but I'm fine. I'll be happy to answer any questions as we deliberate. Okay. All right, I'll go ahead and bring it back to us for discussion. Um, I'll start, I guess. A um, couple things. Um, I was actually on the Planning Commission back in 2007 when we did the um, amendment to the to the southeast, I mean, to the development plan, the. Uh, the 2007 one, the Southern Development Plan, and um, you know we put in this auto-related commercial, and I do remember the discussion. I think at the time the the question was where are we going to put our new um, auto dealerships, and we needed a place um, where we could have large swaths of of kind of flat land because that's what auto dealers wanted, and we had lots of testimony about the need for um, areas. We, we were underserved in the auto dealership, and we thought this would be a great place to bring in some new auto dealerships. And so we, um, that was the testimony, that was the decision. We thought this would be a great place. Crown Toyota was kind of across the other land, uh, across the, the SLT, and we thought this would be a great place to do that. So we put that in the plan, and like within a year or two, the auto developers decided they didn't like that, and they 
they went to where they are today. They 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 went uh, further up Iowa. They didn't want to be that far south. They wanted to be on Iowa, and uh, they started to buy up the land. And they are where they are now. At, um, most of them around 31st um, and Iowa. And we re eventually the city commission rezoned the land there. Um, so. Um, and that's where our dealerships went, not where we thought they thought they would want to go or th where we thought the plan should put them. Um, and thus this kind of set there because um, the auto-related companies went to another location and we don't really need um, and don't have great demand for another large swath of um, auto dealership land because they've already developed where they wanted to develop. Um, so that's what happens with these plans. You, you come up with a plan, you think, hey, this is a good place for something to go, and it decides not to go there. And so the question is, what, what should go there? Um, and so I, I do think it's a time for that, that plan to be um, um, reviewed, and, and you know certainly um, this plan has been brought forward. So. Um, so I think that's one point. Um, I don't think that is what we want anymore. We don't want a large auto-related commercial development there. So what do we want there? I think we want new development. Um, and as we talk about in our new code um, that we're working on, we want uh, mixed use. We want mixed use. Um, we want residential. We want commercial. We want them together. We want walkable neighborhoods that have multiple things to be done. and. Where can um, that be developed? So when I look at this revised plan, it basically has commercial and mixed use. Um, that, I think, is what we want in a plan. And um, I'm excited about that. I'm excited about having mixed use um, plans. You know, the size of this is 177 acres. Now, a lot of that is green space. Um, a lot of that is not being developed. And so it's really, you know, smaller than the amount being developed. But, you know, we're talking about neighborhoods the size of, you know, of, on the map that Sandy showed of Kennedy, of Hillcrest, um, of Old West Lawrence. Um, but we're talking about um, communities with that much land space, but a lot more housing. Why is it a lot more housing? Because it's a lot denser. It's a lot, um, it's, it's not all single family. It is uh, a, a, the same area as something like Old West Lawrence, but a lot more housing units um, in that same area. But also you have mixed use. Um, and so, um, or Hillcrest or whatever. So I'm excited about a plan that brings that together. It's exactly what we've been asking for. And um, it's exactly um, what we need. And I hope we actually see a lot more plans like this that mix commercial and housing together. Um, you know, there's been some comments about affordable housing. I think there's a mix of housing in this unit. I think that's good, but I'm also a strong believer in all housing. We need more housing um, on all levels, as um, both Patrick and, and Russ talked about. We need housing at all levels, and we're competing for workforce at all levels, competing for workforce at entry level, we're competing for workforce at the higher levels, and so we need housing at all levels. And again, this is a, a project that brings in a bunch of different types of housing. Um, it has apartments, it has duplexes, it has um, you know townhomes, and it has single family. So again, that's the type of um, 
um, project I'm excited about. So um, I think those all fall into place. Obviously, um, mainly what we've heard about is the question about the floodplain or the floodway. Um, and yeah, I mean, I think absolutely it's something to be concerned about. And I think that's exactly what we have our staff um, you know, looking at. Um, you know, I do agree with Phil that, I mean, the, People say it's going to flood, but yes, the floodway is where it's going to flood. We expect flooding in the floodway, um, and then and then the flood fringe. It's how how you deal with that, and obviously, not only on one hand there's fill, but there's also where what where are we going to put the water? Well, obviously, there's a big uh, drainage area on this on this project and so yeah you have fill in some places but then you take dirt from other places right so you have places for the water to go that's the process our staff is looking at um, that's the process FEMA will be looking at and that's the process the state will be looking at and I trust all those entities um, to make those right decisions um, and um, you know so I, I'm comfortable with that but certainly from a planning um, um, amendments point of view I am fine with that whether or not it passes all those other tests down the road um, I trust that process but for me this is a good comprehensive plan amendment that that gives us housing that gives us mixed use and accomplishes the goals um, that we've been looking for and so I'm excited to support it uh, yeah uh as Commissioner Finkeldine said, a lot of those reasons. Um, we direly need housing, just available housing, um, badly. Uh, we have under, been underbuilding for years and years and years, and it is finally catching up to us if it hasn't already. So um, this will go a long ways to adding to our supply, which I believe the gentleman before said, it contributes to the conveyor, conveyor belt of housing, where it opens up that housing that people have moved from to this housing, and that opens up from down below that housing to the next housing, and then hopefully we can keep the cycle going. But in order to get the cycle going, we need more housing. Um, and as Commissioner Finkeldye said, uh, it's this is not the end of the process. Um, and as Phil said, uh, and, and Sandy said, it's uh, there will be other eyes on this from the state and federal level uh, looking at this, and also our city staff, who is entirely, you know, uh, who I trust implicitly on this, will be looking at this continually as well. Um, and last, the point of it is. We've been struggling to do a lot of infill, and aspects of it are mixed, mixed use. And this is an opportunity to go ahead and do that, uh, where we include commercial and residential, and also open space, so that uh, people can go ahead and recreate. So um, I, I think this is a great opportunity for us, and uh, I'm, I'm going to go ahead and support it. make a quick point to um, and first I want to say Sandy thank you for the presentation um, had to do a little bit more deeper homework on on this one and um, was took a, a lot of deep time into the fill and build and to understand that process and what you presented to us and I do appreciate that um, giving us something that 
what I researched and what I was thinking and what you presented on tonight made both of my thoughts come together. And I do a pre and so I felt like I was a good student. So I, I think if you would have gave me a pop quiz tonight, I probably would have got a solid B minus <laughs> on it. Um, and I think what with a lot of this, with the process, what's in front of us, and what we're being asked to do, um, you know, it, it feels a, a part of me. It makes me feel weird, and it does make me feel icky because we are dealing with an area that's had essentially a bone of contention in this community for a very long time. Um, I'm not going to say that it's about pro-build, anti-build. If it's about the town versus city mentality, it's a lot of things and. Like I've stated before with any master plan, a master plan is a master plan and never gets it right. Just gives you something to either go back to and say, yay, we did it, or you blame it. So you either praise it or you blame it, or at least that's what we learned in school. Um, so, I mean, there's parts of this that I don't, it does not make me feel good, but I know from what I've, what I've been reading and what I've been speaking with, who I've been speaking with on this, I do feel confident that what has been put in front of us and what staff has put in front of us is something that we could, um, I feel comfortable moving forward with it. So I'll say that. Before I move forward, I would like someone from, I know we have some representatives here from New Boston. If you could ask, if I can answer one, ask you one question, so either Phil or whoever. Um, because we all had presentations um, on this um, and the visioneering of what this project could look like. And we don't have to go into too much detail tonight, but the question I want to ask is, do you envision this project having any type of affordable housing mechanism in it? So, <clears throat> do, the answer is yes. We do. Um, we've met with representatives who participate in that space. We don't. Mm -hmm. We've talked to them about what they could see their role in it being. Mm -hmm. And I think there's going to be an opportunity uh, in the very near future to have a really in-depth uh, discussion with you all about that. And that, that is, I think that's probably all I want to say right now. Oh, but we are already having that thought and that conversation. Yes. That's and, and I would appreciate it if you would have said no, I would have appreciated that answer as well. I think one of the pieces for me that I, I feel like we still have some learning to do between that public-private sector piece to the point, um, Mr. Struble, that you made, that there is a little bit of hesitancy. And there's hesitancy because of what our legislature has preempted us to do. And there's hesitancy because it's not, it's not familiar space for a lot of our private developers. And so the answer to the question is not hand-me-down housing. Okay? Because I, I know what I make now. Maybe I'll make a little bit more money here in a couple of years, but I make a pretty decent salary doing what I do. And yes, a $300,000 home is way out of my price point. But do not insult my intelligence by telling me or anyone else in our community that they should be happy with a hand-me-down house because the only thing that's worthy of being built here is new market housing. So anything that's annexed and that we develop is going to be new market. It's going to be market rate housing. That's insulting. 
if that's the case, then we spent a year and a half, almost a year and a half, wasting our time updating our land development code. Because then that means we're falling into bad housing, pro bad housing policy and practice. And it takes us back to where we are, where you have folks over here, folks over here, and there is no mixed income housing. Any report, any article that you read about the success of a community is based on having mixed income housing. That's what's successful. Bringing on a bunch of new market housing is not what makes it successful. It's bringing on new development that meets the price points of the folks who work at Burt Nash, for the folks who work at LMH, for the folks who work for the school district, KU, Haskell, and here in the city. So the idea that new has to be market, that's not true. New has to be a partnership if they want this city to be successful. And so any person that goes into this project continuing to think that everything has to be market rate, that if we bring it on, you've lost me and you've lost this community. So we need to change that thinking very quickly or else we're going to find ourselves <coughs> struggling and spinning our wheels on any type of new development that comes into our community. There has to be a sense of partnership with public and private in order to bring on mixed income housing. And if we want to know why we're in this position, it has to do with a study we did several years ago when we talked about a special task force on what is it going to take for our community to thrive. So when we ask the question about why we're struggling to fill schools and to bring families and make this place livable, we perpetuated that by saying we, by, by marketing ourselves as a senior living community. So we're, we're atoning for that right now. And I don't use that to say as a critique, that's just us being honest about what we did. And that's how we moved our community. So this is our opportunity to learn from it and let's learn from it and do it right. So to the point, yes, to bring on this new crossing project, we're gonna have to think creatively about incentives, things that we can do because we, we can't do inclusionary zoning. State preempted us on that. So we have to be creative in working with our private developers and encouraging our private developers to work with tenants to homeowners, to work with any other development uh, developer that may do moderate workforce, big A, small A affordable housing in this community. Because if I hear someone again say that the only thing that's gonna get us going is that everything that comes on the block has to be new and that the only thing I'm worthy of in this community is a hand-me-down house, that sounds like a lot of othering, and that sounds like bad housing policy. Thank you, Mayor. I'll go ahead and go. So this is the right project. It's a great project. Um, I like the idea that we're getting <clears throat> rid of the auto zone designation. I've always cringed when I saw that on our maps before. Um, I like the way the development's laid out. The problem I have with it is just the wrong location. I, I can't get past the flood floodplain issue, and I know you're right, we can build on floodplain if we want to, build it up. I just don't think it's really wise long-term planning. So for that reason, I cannot support it. Uh, so I'm gonna be brief, it's been a long day. I'm gonna say, um, I, I agree with Commissioner Larson, you know, this is not an ideal location. Unfortunately, there doesn't seem to be an ideal location in Lawrence, Kansas anywhere. Uh, it's either in somebody's, uh, you know, 
floodplain or in, it's potentially class one or two soils or it's got you know 100 year old trees or you know it's in somebody's backyard there's always going to be reasons for us not to want to develop and i'm sensitive to that and i i work in that industry and i understand it's important to pay attention to all of these natural impacts that um, we have no idea you know um, what kind of negative externalities might be caused from this development but the conversation today is about the mighty wakarusa river uh, the, the river is, is uh, known for its meandering, it's known for its uncontrollability, it's known for, uh, you know, having some of the deepest banks for the narrowest channels. So um, what, what, what's known about it is that it's been rough to, to, to manage and to, uh, to get under control. And so the, the best solution to that is to not try to harness it, is to leave it wild. And I think that's a, that's a reasonable and just way to go about it. Um, but I think most people don't understand, you know, the ramifications of, of, you know, of choosing not to do anything here either. And I think for me, um, we talk about, I've heard discussions about global warming. I've heard discussions about, you know, long-term, short-term flooding. I've heard discussions about how we have not paid attention to the environment and our community goals, and we've, you know, haven't done enough to, to save and rescue uh, lands that are sensitive. So I, I see there's a lot of uh, conflicting needs in our community, and, you know, our job is to wade through these conflicting needs and to try to make the best decision. And, you know, I feel like I have a lot, I've, I have way too much information on this to really try to convey to you, so I'm not even gonna try to. I'm just gonna say that I, I believe in the uh, federal and specifically FEMA's CLOMAR and LOMAR process. I've been a part of it in the past. Um, I've been a part of rectifying bad choices and bad design choices in the past, and I've also been a part of trying to um, build our way out of a floodplain, as somebody mentioned. Um, unfortunately, land is is viable um, only in certain circumstances, and I, I don't. I hate to see this uh, piece of land left alone just because it's. Uh, adjoining to the mighty Wakarusa River, but I also see uh, the tremendous need of our community for housing, the tremendous need for um, growth and some sort of plan for where we're going to put the people that want to live here. Um, not to mention, um, um, I, I think it's ironic that this much of this development would have been allowed if they had chosen to go with a traditional neighborhood design format, which ironically, there's been one project done in our community and we spent years doing traditional neighborhood design forums and processes through our community, and yet we haven't had a single person come forward with a design, yet w with the incentives to be able to build throughout this property without even some of these discussions, really. So um, I feel like this is um, an example of when the city tries to, to direct people to a location uh, that it may or may not want to be at, uh, both whether it's residential or commercial. But I feel like um, the impact to the river, the impact to the floodway, uh, you know, is going to be mitigated, I believe, um, to the best of everyone's technical knowledge. And I also believe that the, the end result may lead to more people enjoying the wetlands, more people being aware of the wetlands and, and some of the beautiful sites that are there, as well as some of the infrastructure that the city, the state, the federal government have put into enjoying those wetland areas. So more people in our community is really fundamentally important to me. I'm going to stick to my decision to try to be accommodating to new housing. I'm, I'm, I agree with Amber. Um, specifically, I think we shouldn't be excluding all new development to be market rate, but, but I also 
ta I'm taken aback to the idea that a, a, a used home is somehow um, a, a negative thing. You know, my first home that I bought was used. My parents' first home was used. I feel like not everything can be new, but I think we need to genuinely be concerned about setting a precedent in the future for really in in including people in that process. So um, although it may feel like we're discounting people, I want to in include them as much as possible. So um, I'm, I'm in favor of, of doing what we can to try to change this uh, Try, try to change a comprehensive plan to the best of our ability to include more development and, and thoughtful development in this area. So I'm, I'm in favor of it. So Commissioner Dever, I got a question for you. Yeah. Other than I'm gonna say that your, your comments were almost as long as mine, so you did not keep it brief. Sorry, um, I haven't said much all day. You're okay. You're gonna get used to being up late. Um, so two, I, I think several things that we, we've heard tonight um, and that I continue to hear in, in comments and in testimony is that, you know, we're use, that staff and individuals are using instruments in isolation and not in totality or things are dated or this is not current. And so since this is kind of in the realm and flex of the work you do. Sure. Do you want to comment on that or just? Yeah, that's a great point. I didn't touch on it. I pulled up the, uh, the FEMA map when somebody mentioned that some of this data was more than 10 years old. There's an there's a existing LOMAR map immediately adjacent to this property that was changed as of 2018. So FEMA and the regulatory agencies have been working hard to try to redraw the lines of this, of this Wakarusa Valley. It's, it's, a, it's, a, you know, it's, a, it's a living, breathing system, and they have really created channels that I believe represent well represent this area after living here for almost 40 years and, and spending a lot of time in this area, both when they developed the SLT and well before that, before it existed. So um, I feel like the, I feel like the FEMA maps have been uh, updated and accounted for other more recent rainfall events. And I may be wrong, but judging by the documentation on the map I'm looking at now, they, they have been looking at this area uh, more recently than 10 or 12 years ago. So not the specific piece, but the entire river is an, an ecosystem that, you know, basically starts at, unfortunately, at, at, at Clinton Lake and, and then, you know, meanders its way. Yeah. So, um, you know, for me, this is, um, I feel like it's been highly studied area because it's been uh, highly controversial, um, especially when the SLT was, and, you know, any major, major federal action, you know, the significant effects of the quality of the human environment requires you know, a full NEPA assessment, and that was all done. It was all immediately adjacent to the SLT, and so some of this land is, exists directly in that footprint that they studied, so. Actually, our flood zone map is 2019. Yeah. So that's good. 18? 2019. Yeah, 19. Revised in 2019. Yeah. No, I'm just looking at the, the full one from the federal government, which I was just trying to go through to figure out when they added the connotations. So, but Michael had mentioned it hadn't been studied in over 10 years, and I, I, I wanted to make sure I understood that that was not accurate, and it, it, it's not accurate, so. Okay. We've all set our piece. I would entertain a motion. I move to approve a comprehensive plan amendment CPA 23-00186 and adopt on first reading joint ordinance number 10020. I second that motion. She second. All right, I have a first and a second. Um, all those in favor, please say aye. 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 Any opposed? Opposed. All right, four, four for it and one opposed. So 
it passes four to one. All right. Um, moving us on to item number two. Thank you all for your presentation. Um, receive recommendation. Good luck. Um, receive recommendation from the Public Incentive Review Committee, PERC, for the request for turn hall for LLC for neighborhood revitalization area NRA. Uh, industrial, or I'm sorry, industrial revenue bond, sales exemption, and community, Im community improvement district incentive to conduct historic rehabilitation on the property at 900 Rhode Island Street, Lawrence, Kansas, and conduct a public hearing on the establishment of an NRA and CID at the 900 Rhode Island Street location. Uh, good evening, commissioners. A uh, long time no see. Uh, Kurt, if you wouldn't mind. Helping me, I think I maybe lost the presentation on the screen. It's all good. That's the one you already did, right? Yeah, that's the PES presentation. I'll, you know, I'll just pull it from the um, the agenda item, the PDF. I think that'll work. <coughs> it's a big, it's a big file. There we go. Okay. Uh, good evening, Mayor Commissioners. Um, so tonight we're going to be talking about uh, the incentive package for the Turn Hollow building located at the 900 uh, Rhode Island Street. Um, this incentive package includes um, industrial revenue bond uh, for the purpose of a sales tax exemption, a neighborhood revitalization area property tax rebate, and a community improvement district additional sales tax. Uh, so just brief overview of the items we're going to be highlighting tonight, um, the project, the request, staff analysis, um, additional consideration, staff recommendation, and then the requested action. Um, so the Turn Hollow building, um, the project will be built on the one lot that you know, the, the building currently exists on, um, and it has been underutilized for a relatively lengthy period of time. 
Um, the plans call for a complete rehabilitation of the historic building uh, per the covenants established on the property. And we also have uh, Pat Watkins with the development team who can go into that in a little bit later. Um, this will include some structural improvements, window, floor, exterior, and exterior rehabilitation, as well as, as, well as some ADA compliance. Um, ultimately, for the size of the building, it will um, renovate about 5,000 um, square feet of commercial and restaurant on the first floor, uh, as well as uh, about 4,500 square feet uh, for community and event space. Um, so the full incentive package, um, it is a 15-year, uh, um, the applicant has requested a 15-year 85% NRA. Um, staff has evaluated it at a 70% recommendation, at a 70% level, which is um, our official recommendation. Um, a 20-year 2% additional sales tax as part of the CID. Um, as a reminder, um, the CID, uh, as part of the policy, um, includes a, uh, a specific cap, um, which is identified as a, a gap in the funding or through the but-for analysis. Um, so the gap that was identified is $1.9 million um, as for that sales tax, uh, as well as the industrial revenue bond sales tax exemption for construction materials and labor. As a reminder, uh, the NRA is a property tax rebate program. It applies to the incremental valuation only, and the property, uh, the base property value is shielded, um, so the property owner continues to pay that, that base value throughout the life of the project. Um, so a little graphic on what that looks like. Um, the approximate base tax payment um, coming up would be about $4,100. Again, this is permanently shielded. Um, and that $4,100 is between all, uh, all three taxing jurisdictions, um, the city, the county, and the school board. Um, the approximate collected increments, so that 30% that the city, um, that all taxing jurisdictions would receive for the 15-year for the uh, life of the incentive um, would start at t about 12,000 in year one and end at about 19,000 a year 15. And then the approximate NRA rebate to the applicant over that lifespan is approximately 28,000 to 45,000 at the end. Uh, so what does that look like for the city? Um, so the amount collected uh, to include the uh, base payment as well as that 30% increment in year one would be roughly $4,300, um, ending with $6,200 and a $78,000 total over the 15 years. Um, the amount reimbursed to the applicant uh, for, from the city starts at around $8,700, ends at about $13,000 with a total of $163,000 um, to the applicant over the life of the, the NRA. Um, just a brief reminder of some of the NRA projects the city has approved in the past. Most recently, the New Hampshire Lofts, um, which is an infill affordable housing project with first floor live work units and the 700 New Hampshire uh, commercial uh, redevelopment of the former Borders Bookstore building. Uh, the CID, um, since it has been a while since we've seen one of these, um, so it is an additional sales tax on the property. In this case, the applicant has requested a 2% increase in sales tax. Um, so the, the base in Lawrence is between all the, the state, the county, and the city sits at 9.3, so that means sales tax of this property would be 11.3. Um, there is a cap to that reimbursement, like I mentioned earlier, um, specifically to the CID. Um, so the sales tax would be collected until 20 years or a $1.9 million reimbursement has been achieved through that sales tax. Um, and this is, uh, the way this is established is through the ordinance um, that's on the agenda tonight to establish the district and set the terms as presented in the development agreement. Uh, for the industrial revenue bonds, again, it is for sales tax uh, 
exemption purposes only for project materials and labor. Um, the city is not liable for these bonds. It's merely a conduit mechanism um, so the developer can receive a project exemption certificate. Um, the estimated uh, sales tax exemption for the developer is roughly $260,000, um, but the city does recoup some cost as part of the origination fee, um, which is estimated at $20,000. Looking at the cost-benefit analysis, um, for all taxing jurisdictions, this is significantly higher than some of the projects we've seen recently, um, with the city seeing a 5.31 uh, cost-benefit ratio. A lot of this mainly comes from the uh, sales tax that's projected to be generated at this property, um, with it being a, a cultural arts draw. Um, a lot of that money will either, if it's comes from the outside or stays within the city or comes from within the city, um, there's gonna be a lot of it that's, that's directed our way. Um, so some final considerations um, from staff. This project is in alignment with our ED policy and the Plan 2040, the city's comprehensive plan. Um, it meets our goals of increasing historic rehabilitation and investing in uh, community arts and culture, um, as well as the historic covenants on the property um, present some additional challenges which the uh, development team can, can go through a little bit later. Um, so again, it is staff's recommendation um, that this project meets the requirements for all three incentive re all three incentives requested. Um, however, we do recommend that change in request from the uh, 85 down to a 70 percent NRA. And the public incentives review committee uh, met last week and voted five to zero on a motion to recommend uh, staff's recommendation at that 70 percent level. Um, so the uh, recommended actions and next steps um, would be adopting all of those uh, ordinances and the resolution for the IRB, and then for the NRA portion, um, it would need to go through the uh, county and the school board to receive their approval. Okay. I want to make sure, Shay, this is a, a public hearing item, so is that, need to start, okay. All right. Um, Pat, do you want to present some items? Sure. Thanks, Sam. Good evening, commissioners. My name is Patrick Watkins. I'm here on behalf of Turnhall LLC, uh, the property owner. Um, with me tonight is Mike Myers, uh, the architect on our team. Um, we're pleased to be here. This is the culmination of many, many years of work. Um, I also see the, the fine gentlemen from the LPA are here. This really started with their efforts over 10 years ago. Um, they saved this building. Um, and I've said it before at public hearings, and it's worth saying again, it's a miracle that this building is still standing. It's our oldest, our community's oldest uh, community building, and this is the opportunity to save it. This is really the moment uh, that a lot of these efforts have led to. This is the opportunity to make a, a project feasible. Um, we moved through a, a pretty long planning process over the last couple of years, and there's a lot of community stakeholders that I, I'd like to just briefly mention that have looked at this project and have seen the plans and that um, have approved them. Um, we've received good support along the way. I, don't, I, I can't think of um, many pieces or elements of negativity that we've, we've picked up. The HRC has reviewed this project. Um, they have unanimously approved it. Um, we'll be going back to them for a couple of little design tweaks. The BZA granted three variances. One of them was a large parking variance, um, but their board heard it and, and approved it. The State Historical Society has been on site with us. Uh, they have approved our plans and they are stakeholder um, in this building. 
The National Park Service has received our plans and they have uh, tentatively approved them. They had a couple of tweaks um, that we've addressed. And of course the LPA holds a covenant on this property and they've been uh, supportive along the way. Um, and, and now uh, we've tried to craft what, what I think is the most reasonable incentive uh, application we could put together, all in conformance with the city's policies. Um, and uh, I want to credit uh, Sam and, and Britt um, for their help in this process. And of course, the third party reviewer for the city, Grow America, um, they've been um, supportive of the process and, and they've been good to work through in this process. Um, everything that Sam noted in his presentation is accurate. Um, he noted that the city um, has recommended a 70% NRA and that is acceptable from our side. Um, so we're supportive of the staff's report. We're supportive of their recommendation. We appreciate the Public Incentive Review Committee's 5-0 uh, uh, recommendation as well. Um, I don't need to belabor too much of it. Um, I'd like Mike to, to describe the project over a couple of minutes just so you can hear about it. Um, and then uh, there may be some public comment, but uh, if there's anything after that, I'd be happy to answer any questions you may have. Uh, good evening, Mayor and Commissioners. Uh, Mike Myers, I'm an architect with Hernley and Associates here in town, and it's uh, my pleasure to talk to you a little bit about, uh, you got to hear something uh, about something new a little while ago, now we're gonna talk about something very, very old. Um, to give you a little perspective, it's 36 years older than the Douglas County, 34 years older than the courthouse. So it's, I think it's reached, it's about 156th birthday. And um, as mentioned, it's it's not been very well uh, used or uh, very, um, there haven't been very many uses in it for quite a, quite a long time. And uh, I don't know if anyone's, if, if you've all got a chance to look at it or walk through it yet, but if you haven't, I highly recommend it. Um, it's, it's really a fantastic example of a building that's of, of its age that has had very little changes o over the course of time. Consequently, um, it's also not had a whole lot of maintenance. So um, what, I, what I want to talk to you about is, is the, the expense and, uh, of the project a little bit and about some of its needs. Um, the, the general concept is that the upper floor will be an event venue and the lower floor will be a restaurant. Um, so part of what we have to do is bring it up to code um, for those uses. Um, and uh, stepping back a little bit, just looking at the building as a whole, it's got some structural issues, it's got some foundation issues that stem from a, um, uh, when the building was maybe uh, 30, 40 years old, they added a basement to it, and they, they dug a basement underneath it, but they didn't dig completely under the wall, so the walls are uh, starting to sort of topple a little bit, and we've actually already gone in and fixed that, and in, 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 uh, you might have noticed the, the corner sort of missing for a few months there at the at the southwest, um, so there's there's that issue. There's a general repointing of all the stone. There's um, all the restoring all the old windows that were removed and are slowly coming back into the building. Um, so we're you know obviously keeping all of those. Um, Character-defining elements as the Secretary of Interior standards require for the historic um, tax credit review um, that we're that we're engaged in. Um, other things with regard to the building in terms of uh, structural, uh, to, in order to bring it up to code, we've got to completely, um, uh, we, every floor joist in the building has to have another floor joist, a new floor joist added alongside it um, to get it uh, to be able to withstand the weight of the, all the people that we'd like to see in there as an event venue and a restaurant. Um, 
it, uh, there's really no uh, uh, accessibility to the building right now. It's got stairs up to the front and stairs down into the basement. So part of what we're doing is we're building an addition off the back that will allow us to um, get an elevator in it and a ramped entry and um, um, other, other st stair improvements. Um, commercial kitchen, fire suppression, new modern electrical wiring, plumbing, all those kinds of things. Um, and just general general uh, up, up um, improvement to the building. But happy to stand for any questions, if you have any questions about the project in general. Okay, um, any questions? Curious when it's gonna be done. When it's gonna be done? <laughs> probably about a year and a half after it starts in earnest. So we're kind of getting, working our way through these, this, these last few processes. Um, you know, we did get it started just in terms of uh, um, emergency sort of repairs. There was that, that stone corner that was about to collapse. So I think it's probably, you know, about a year and a half project once it starts in earnest. So it's probably sometime in 2025 would be my hope. Okay. Okay, if there's no more questions, what I'll do is I'll open the public hearing and uh, open public comment. All right. Mr. Mayor, and, uh, commissioners, my name is Mike Delaney. I'm the uh, president of the Lawrence Preservation Alliance. Um, you all have been at this for a long time, so I'm not going to take uh, but, but just a minute or so. Um, I, there's a letter in the packet that we prepared in support of the project, and um, I can't tell you how happy we are to see the project have uh, reached this point. And I, I'd like to pick up on a on a a line of uh, questions that uh, Commissioner Sellers uh, uh, made a few minutes ago about about the appropriateness or the need for public-private partnerships. Um, there's been a lot of the private partnership so far. The uh, LPA purchased the building. Uh, a number of its members loaned money to, to, uh, towards the purchase of the building. Uh, they helped to secure grants um, uh, to do some initial stabilization of the building and whatnot. Um, they found first one developer who uh, had a good idea uh, that was not able to come to fruition. Somebody who'd been successful at redeveloping historic properties in the past. We've got uh, another team uh, uh, has come in now. They've got a wonderful plan. I mean, this is going to be really a fabulous project. And, and this is the opportunity for the public part of the public-private partnership for the uh, for the, the the various incentives that the this group is asking for are essential um, to, to, to rehabilitate a building as costly as this one is going to be in order to bring it back to life. But when it's back to life, it'll be a real treasure for the community, um, just as it was uh, for the German community 150 years ago. Thank you. Good evening, Commissioners. Dennis Brown. Uh, I was the president of Lawrence Preservation Alliance when we purchased the Turn Hall in 2012. When we bought it, we we knew we were buying a very troubled building, uh, one 
that had been underused for years, just a year following our purchase of it, the uh, occupancy permit was lost and it's been unoccupied uh, for all that time since then. Um, so we knew we had to be the entity to get things started. A nonprofit had to step in to get the turn hall stabilized and turned around. It wasn't going to be a project that a for-profit entity could take on. We knew we couldn't finish it. All we could do was start it. It had to have a community lift, and we were going to start it. So we got the stabilization project completed with a grant from the Heritage Conservation Council, a community partner. We were actually the first major grant of that uh, uh, program in uh, 2013. Um, and, you know, we, we had a, a, a balloon payment coming up that LPA, when we bought this building, we didn't have the money to pay for that balloon payment. We put it on the market after the stabilization project and uh, uh, no one was really beating down the doors to come to us and say, hey, we want to buy this property. We got a lot of lookers. We were really fortunate that Tony Krishnich stepped forward and bought that property, made us whole. A couple years later, paid the balloon payment. He was trying to find a partner, a business partner. Wasn't really able to get that done. Uh, we. So we no longer owned the property, but we saw at that point that the parking lot across the street, U.S. Bank, was going to uh, getting a lot of interest in that parking lot. We knew we needed that parking lot for whoever the new owner of Turnhalla would be. We got eight LPA members to give us personal loans. And LPA stepped in again, even though we didn't own the Turnhalla, we bought the parking lot. We're in up to here again. <laughs> the new ownership, we're so thrilled. Uh, they have great design professionals. They've worked with HRC. They're working with the State Preservation Office. Now here we are where, again, the community lift, the economic development tools that can help us save a major downtown building are at our disposal to put this thing over the top and get it onto where it's going to finish. We're so excited to be here tonight. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Any uh, additional public comment here in the room? Not seeing any. Uh, Sherry, any on, on Zoom? No, Mayor. Okay. I'll bring it back and I will close the public hearing. All right. Um, bringing it back to us. Any further discussion? It's a great project. I'm really, really pleased to have this come before us. Um. Well, it's, uh, yes, it's an outstanding project. And honestly, I would uh, like to echo comments I heard in Perk um, and thank the LPA and thank Tony for keeping this alive and, you know, going until somebody could go ahead and then steward it from that point because uh, it's, it's an asset for a community over, what did you say, 164 years old? Um, wow, yeah, it's, I'm, I'm glad to, glad to see it. And 
thank Conley Architects and Zuif for stepping up too. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> Everybody. There's a lot more money to go in yeah. than what we're putting in. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. All right. Uh, and that being said, um, so looks like we've got four motions on this, right? Five. Four. Oh, yeah. Or the first one's just a yeah, recommendation. Yeah. Yeah. Right? yeah. So. Yeah, you don't need to. Yeah. To make a motion on that. Time, All right. That first one. Do them one at a time. Yeah, I guess so. I'll make the first motion. Adopt on first reading ordinance number one zero zero two seven. Second. Second. All right. All those in favor, please say aye. 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 That passes four to zero. Okay, I'll do the second. Adopt on first reading. I'm, I'm sorry, uh, four to zero, um, Vice Mayor Dever in uh, absence. Yeah. <coughs> Got it? He's absent. Yeah, yeah. Sorry, he kind of snuck Sorry, out. Sorry, I missed that. <laughs> he snuck out on you. He was very quiet. Yeah. Thank you. Uh -huh. He just, can I ask, since I can't, I didn't see him leave. Did he leave before this item? Yes, okay. he did. He did. Thank you. He, he I just left. want to make sure yeah. I note that in the minutes. Yeah, he left right there, right after the first one. Okay, thank you. Okay, second item is adopt on first reading ordinance number 10026 and authorize the city manager to execute the development agreement between the city of Lawrence, Kansas and Turn Hall, LLC. Second. First and the second. All those in favor, please say aye. 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 Hearing none opposed, passes four to zero, one absent. Adopt resolution of intent number 7519. Second. Second. All right. All those in favor, please say aye. 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 Passes four to zero, one absent. Authorize the city manager to enter into a performance agreement with the incentive applicant and cooperative agreement with Douglas County, Kansas and USD 497 school board. Second. All right, we're consistent. All those in favor, please say aye. 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 Passes four to zero, one absent. All right, thank you all. And you. to echo Commissioner Finkelday, thank you to the architects and to the new owner of Turn Hollow. Thank please. you. All right, that moves us on to, to item I, commission items. Any commission items? I have two. Um, my first one is in relation to our Black History Month proclamation that was done earlier this evening. Um, just to add a little bit more context to it, I feel like these are opportunities to educate and enlighten our community on the importance of what Black History Month is. And I feel like we missed a teachable opportunity just to share that, you know, uh, Carter G. Woodson, Dr. Carter G. Woodson is the purveyor of um, Black History Month, which actually started as Negro History Week. And how that elevated itself and moved as a way of celebrating the not just the accomplishments of black individuals in our community, but to be able to to build a sense of grounding um, in the black community. And so um, Dr. Woodson went on to become the second African-American man to graduate um, to earn his PhD actually in history from Harvard, or just to just earn his PhD from Harvard and went on to do great work and become the dean at Howard University, which is a prestigious um, historical black college and university. So we owe 
Dr. Woodson a, a huge uh, gratitude for what individuals in our community and our ancestors have been able to pass down to us, and so I think that should be mentioned and noted. Um, my second commission item is just to elevate that we have Super Bowl royalty in our community. Um, and this one's kind of a little, is personal to me. Um, for those who don't know the Boydo family, um, Tina and Kofi, who in around 2000, it was like 1999, um, immigrated from Ghana to Lawrence um, to build a better opportunity for their family. And so when I came here as a student in the fall of 99, it was about a year or so later that I started to do children's church um, at one of the local churches here. And one of the many children that I had were the Boydo um, boys. And so um, I known them as um, P, K, and Paco, because there's twins and then there's Paco. Um, and P and K are the older um, brothers, and they're all wonderfully handsome, but just brilliant black scholars in their own right. Um, Payan P is um, an art, cultural and arts creative here locally. Um, his twin, Kakra, is at residency in, at Northwestern. Um, graduated from KU Med a year or so ago. My memory's getting a little rusty. Um, but he's doing a psych residency focusing on youth mental health and has become a huge advocate for mental health and mental health awareness, period, but mostly for youth. And then of course, uh, Paco we know as a um, uh, secondary player, cornerback for the Kansas City Chiefs. And so, um, his mother, Tina, his father, Kofi, um, and most of, I think all of the family is actually in Vegas right now. Um, Paco was able to fly his family out to be there for that, and so um, it's nice to know that I can say I have new someone that played in the Super Bowl. We don't know if he's going to play, but he'll get a ring, and that's all that matters. So we do have, we, as Laurentians, whether or not you cheer on the Chiefs or not, that's your business, but we do have royalty here. And he is a K-State alum for Commissioner Finkel die um, and a chesty lion, um, but just wonderful to be able to say that I've known this grown human being since a very small child kind of dates me and scares me at the same time. So, but congratulations, Paco and Tina and Kofi. Okay. All right. Um, next item is a city manager's report. Craig? I think the only thing I have is that coming um, meeting stuff. Okay. <laughs> Do we have anything next week? You don't see anything on here for next week? We're working on it. Yeah, I think a couple of the items that we expected are, are sliding. Um, okay. The ECC uh, and the Humane Society uh, aren't going to make it um, on that agenda, so they'll probably go to the 20th. I saw that as will the uh, community oversight work group. They made progress, but aren't quite ready mm -hmm. for next week. Okay. We do have other items. We just don't have any regular agenda items at the moment. Okay. Just a consent. 
Okay. It'll be a surprise. <laughs> right. Um, this is a public comment item. Uh, didn't sense any further questions on that one. Uh, any public comment in the room? Not seeing any. Um, Sherry? No, Mayor. All right, bringing it back. All right. Um, commission calendar. And I think uh, since we previously approved and consent to get rid of the March 13th, that'll be dropped, right? Yes, we'll okay. get those, that calendar updated. Cool. Anything else? All right. Not seeing any? That it leaves one more item. Adjournment. Move to adjourn. Second. All right. First and the second. All those in favor, please say aye. 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 Passes four to zero, one absent. Thank you all. Have a good night, everyone. Thank you.